Hi, I'm Andy Richter, and this past year we accomplished something the skeptics said was impossible. With the help of a bunch of very talented writers, we turned Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan from a movie into a book. Then we got some super cool people, and by cool, I mean willing to be on this show, to narrate. To celebrate this mammoth achievement, we're giving you the whole damn novel in one episode, suitable for listening to on long road trips or hikes or or whatever you people do. And make sure you've hit the subscribe button because we'll be back with an all-new season of The Novelizer soon. This time we're doing Independence Day with narrators like Jake Johnson, Chris Parnell, Paget Brewster, Josh Johnson, Aparna Nanchurla, and Will Forte. But now, here's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the book, the podcast. Chapter 1, The Period. Novelised by Ross Powell, narrated by Christina Chong. This story takes place in space. It's the uppermost and largest part of the sky, extending from the atmospheric stratum that holds blimps all the way up to the celestial sphere that holds rainbows. And our story takes place in the future. But instead of a polluted police state where it rains all the time, like your program to expect, it's a post-scarcity utopia where people dip out to distant worlds for the most frivolous of reasons, and it's never raining because it's in space. But there are still rainbows because it's below the celestial sphere that holds rainbows. Remember? So you can just look up and see them without blimps in the way. It's nice. Our scene opens on an explosion of metal called... The Enterprise, festooned with rockets and frisbees on struts at all angles. This guy we know, Mr. Sulu, is at the helm. He controls a row of steering wheels marked pitch, roll, yaw, and inside out, and he gets to honk the horn. Our old friend, Lieutenant Uhura, is on comms. She enforces parliamentary rules of order over the radio and adds digital effects like auto-tune and reverb. And grumpy old Mr. Spock is our science officer. He keeps events on the bridge from becoming fantasy fiction. Spock is an alien from the planet Vulcan. He looks like Count Chocula from the cereal but has green blood instead of chocolate milk. Maybe you know those guys already, but check your rage when we get to the part about the captain. It's some rando named Lieutenant Savick. God damn it. But sit down. You'll like where this goes. No sooner do we meet our crew than they receive a distress call. Uhura puts it on the speakers and it goes, We're the Kobayashi Maru and we ran into a ghost. Ghosts live in space. The hull came off and our pilot got chased out the airlock and his lungs went everywhere. Then Uhura says, Can you give us your location? And the guy says, Wait. And then there's the sound of him looking through an astrolabe out the window. I'm directly north of a meteor that looks like a chicken, he says. And everyone's like, oh, man. And Savick says, that's in the neutral zone. And she doesn't call it the stupid or shitty neutral zone, but you can still tell she hates that place. Computer, what kind of spaceship is a Kabayashi Maru, says Savick. It's a hospital ship and a disaster evacuation ship and a subsistence farming essential supplies freighter barely welded together. It carries 40 million grams of fragile passengers and a regular complement of babies that never done nothing to no one, says the computer. Now Savick says a sweary version of neutral zone. She chooses the word fucking. And then, Sulu, 
Plot a course to rendezvous. Transport a room, stand by to beam survivors aboard. One of the things hanging off the Enterprise on some or other strut is a giant observatory used for taking MRI images of people on the surface of a planet when the Enterprise is in orbit around that planet. It then 3D prints a copy of the person on board the Enterprise, who is pretty much just as good as the original person, and then melts the original person into neutrinos with a lightning gun so there aren't two identical people running around the ship doing twin scams. This is called a transporter. It also deletes any gonorrhea and intestinal gas from the copy person, but you know sometimes the hydrogen cartridge runs low and the resulting person is all dehydrated and has to drink a glass of gonorrhea to get better. So Savick's plan is to use that thing to rescue the survivors and then GTFO. Of course, you know, they don't get two minutes in before there's a Romulan bird of paradise racing to intercept and two bleeding hog class cruisers and leave us not to forget a giant moon-sized Romulan war moon closing in. So Savick is entirely livid. The warships start laying into the Enterprise with anti-healing guns and torpedoes with sharks in them, loud watery explosions and chewing sounds below decks. The workplace camera that records events on the bridge twists clockwise and then counterclockwise as the crew hold onto their consoles, and all these boxes of artificially scarce non-fungible assets start spilling out the side of the Enterprise where the hull is breached. They're Savix, and now that nothing is naturally scarce, they're indescribably expensive. She'll grieve later. Engine room damage report, she says. Montgomery Scott answers through the intercom. You can hear other people through the comm yelling that they're on fire. Ah, oh, my leg's burning. Now my head's burning. Like that, but just with more emotion. Both of the engine struts fully snapped off, Captain, says Scotty. The engines were put on struts because antimatter smells so bad and because the computer's speech recognizer has trouble with the phrase internal engines. But on the downside, they keep breaking off and jeopardizing the mission. You can hear someone further from the intercom saying very loudly, Computer, put internal engines on the shopping list! And then there's an unintelligible computer voice, and then the same person says, Computer, take turtle penguins off the shopping list! Switch to reserve power and charge phasers, says Savick. Open a chat to the Romulans and tell them, Rude, frowny face, we're on a rescue mission. Uh, they're jamming our frequencies, says Uhura. Sulu interrupts. The Romulans are coming around again. The war moon is firing its main weapon. Evasive action, says Savick, grasping the arms of her chair. Everybody hope they miss. A bunch of guide beams come on in front of the war moon and the rest of its lights go dim for a second and the back part expands and then contracts, like in cartoons of a cat throwing up, and a big squirt of superheated exotic matter comes out of the front gun port it's the opposite of both normal matter and antimatter, but it misses the Enterprise and blows up a Saturn. Good hoping, everyone, says Savick. But then the other ships take their combat turn and destroy the Enterprise's phaser emitters, defensive shields, and food stores, and set its life support system on fire with the area of effect damage. Okay, this mission is a hogshead full of picture, says Savick. Prepare life pods and send out a log beacon. All hands abandon ship. Then there's smoke, lots of smoke. Computer, end simulation, said Spock. He cleared his throat and folded up his armor and damage tables and put away his dice. Vulcans experienced gastric distress when lying, and this included role-playing. Sulu leaned out the porthole and told the Romulans to go home. 
The smoke cleared and the bridge lights came back on. Admiral William Shatner and his friend Dr. Steve McCoy were sitting in the observation area taking turns petting a Tribble. Any advice, Admiral? asked Savick. When I did it, I cast healing spells on the Enterprise Hull, said Shatner. What? said Savick. She looked deeply confused. There aren't spells. Shatner just stared at her, smugly. She side-eyed him. Permission to speak candidly for four minutes, sir. Granted, said Shatner. This test is whack and bonk. It's completely impossible. The bad guys attack immediately. They blow off both our engines on the first shot and set fire to literally everyone in engineering. And then they annihilate all the matter in a four light year radius with the actual Death Star from Star Wars until we eventually necessarily explode. What the fuck is that? Okay, but did you like the part where the guy uses an astrolabe? <laughs> he elbowed her. I did not. She started counting on her fingers. First of all, you don't look through an astrolabe, you look through a sextant. Did you spend 20 years as a starship captain without learning what a sextant is? And then why would he use this archaic thing that depends on the position of a star in the horizon of a planet when he's billions of miles away in deep space? Why doesn't he use normal sensors or just his eyes? And why is he north of something when he's in space? Did you put a bunch of jokes into a test that I'm guaranteed to fail and then think I would be amused by them? Okay, I think you're abusing your permission to speak candidly. I still have two more minutes, said Savick, and went into a tirade about Sulu yelling out a porthole at another spaceship. Do you even know what space is or how sound works? Sulu did that in real life after the simulation ended, said Shatner. Look, the point of the test is to give you practice with failure. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. Now, go off and think about that. Savick left, and McCoy patted Shatner on the shoulder. Wouldn't it be easier to put an experienced crew back on the ship? Galloping around the cosmos is a game for the young bones, replied Shatner. Uh, what's that supposed to mean? said Uhura. Shatner turned to Uhura. Bones is my new nickname for McCoy. You're probably used to me calling him Boner, but... No, 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 said Uhura. I was asking what you meant about commanding a starship being a game for the young. You were weirdly young to be a captain. Most captains have gray hair and look like Professor X from the X-Men film. Shatner looked annoyed at the comparison, so Spock jumped in. Bill, I got you a present. He gave Shatner a book. I know you like antiques. Shatner looked at the book. Nice, he said, holding it up to his eye like a sextant. No, it's a book, he pantomimed reading. Shatner opened the book. Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Message, Spock? None that I'm aware of, just that it's your birthday. Surely the best of times. And one of the main characters sacrifices himself for the greater good further in. Maybe that's foreshadowing of some sort. Oh, that kind of spoils it, doesn't it? No, people like to read it for the jokes, even if they already know the plot. Well, thank you, Spock said Shatner, putting the book under his arm. He and Spock said goodbye and headed off to their respective shuttles. Shit, it's Bill's birthday, said Bones when they were out of earshot. What kind of shops do they have here on the space station? Ahura shrugged and looked down the corridor. There's an optician? Wow. That's just about the worst gift imaginable. 
Dr. McCoy, novelized by Josh Lieb, narrated by John Benjamin. These are men. Kirk is a man. Kirk opens the door to his solo pod and acts like he's surprised to see me. Why, bless me, doctor. Can the vaudeville, I sneer, as I fight the urge to bend down and weep on the hem of his command pants. I shove the packages into his hands. Happy birthday. Kirk unwraps the bottle first, thank Nebulon. His eyebrows arch. Vibelfeltzer sweat, he says. That's illegal in this quadrant. When did you grow a uterus? I rasp as I reach, not too greedily, Bones, for the jug and pour us each a slug. Kirk looks at his leerily. He says, you know they have to drown the Vibelfeltzer in its own mother's milk as the mother watches to extract the sweat. I leave exobiology to the pointy-eared freaks. I down the shot and smack my lips. Damn, that Vib goes down smooth. Like the ad says, you can taste the fear. I reach for the bottle and pour myself another slug. The Vib always helps. I put my glass to my lips but pause when I notice Kirk is watching me. Testing me. He's always testing me. I stare back at him as frankly and as blankly as I can muster. Admiral James T. Kirk. Last of the Rocket Boys. I want to tell him that he's fat. That his hair looks ridiculous. I want to tell him that he's my hero. I slug down the Veeb and tap the smaller box. This might be more to your liking. Jim's eyebrows stay arched when he opens it. I've seen these before. They're antique. They're called, um, pornography? Reading glasses, I correct, glorying in this moment. They're tough to find with the lenses still intact. Good, old-fashioned, 20th century know-how. Most of men your age get a Glabulax injection to deal with short-sightedness. I'm allergic to Glabulax, he says, in exactly, exactly the tone I imagined. Like, off-handed. Like it meant nothing to him to admit this allergy, this weakness. Oh, but I know how much it must pain him. I managed to keep my poker face, but deep inside me, my intestines writhe into a twisted smile. Kirk claps me on the shoulder. Thanks, Bones. Then a cloud passes over his noble brow as he crosses to the living room suite. I grab a seat next to him and put on my best doctor voice. What ails the Admiral? Kirk doesn't answer me, not exactly. He stares out the window at New Frisco and wheezes tunelessly under his breath. I grow old, I grow old. I should wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. What the hell is that supposed to mean, I snap, before I can stop myself. Is he making fun of me? Am I so small to him that he can converse to me in riddles? He turns to me. The eyebrow arches back. Just a little more 20th century know-how, Bones. A poet who is facing much the same dilemma I am today. I never cared much for that long-haired cack. He puts down his glass of Vib. He still hadn't tasted it, and looks at me wryly. What do you care for, Bones? A smug son of a bitch. Is he trying to make me cry? Is he trying to make me care? I don't cry. And I don't care. You have to be hard. You have to be merciless. You have to be empty. Oh, but he's got that superior look. That godlike look. Boring into my soul. I've seen that look before. They'll make a man out of you here, says the old man at the gates of the academy. They'll make a man out of you or don't bother coming home. I did my best. I washed my hands. You're Starfleet's problem now, nerves. Bones, says Kirk. Bones, are you all right? Of course I'm all right, I bark. I'm always all right. 
Then I noticed the blood dripping down my fingers, the shards poking through my palm, where I'd squeezed the glass of Veeb a little too hard. I staunch the bleeding with a napkin as I pull out the fragments. Damn glass must have slipped, I muttered lamely. Are you in pain? asked Kirk. I don't feel anything. He hasn't taken his eyes off me. This isn't how it was supposed to go. He was supposed to be impressed that I'd gotten the Veeb. He was supposed to admit his weakness, his fragility, when I gave him the spectacles. He was supposed to look at me for advice because I am hard and I am merciless. Now he's going to laugh at me with the other men. Scotty and Chekhov and Uhuru and the pointy-eared freak, goddamn him. Old Bones is losing his bottle, they'll smirk. Old Bones is going soft. But he's not smirking now. He's feigning concern. I'm worried about you, Bones. He's worried about me? It wasn't supposed to go this way at all. I finish mending my hand and shoot a Mirai grin. There's nothing wrong with me that a good long shore leave wouldn't fix. His frown deepens. Bones, you're on shore leave. Stop trying to change the subject. I have to take control. I have to steer this back. He needs to be molded, sent, propelled. I need to be trapped with this man in a ship, in the vacuum of space, without the infinite distractions of a civilian world, where we can do our jobs and wear our uniforms and make our right comments, where we can be bonded in bloodlust against Klingons and Daleks and the Rebel Alliance, where we can be men, damn it, and go back to our berths and bolt the airlock and cry ourselves to sleep at night. I lash out wildly, hoping to hit upon the right formula. Admiral, I intone, heal thyself. Proving I grok a little at that long-haired cack myself. His brow wrinkles. He's confused. Is it working? What's that supposed to mean? It means your concern for me is clearly projection. A sick perversion of your fear of your own mortality. He sinks back into his chair like a wounded ape. My Ford, he's so wrapped up in his self-imposed torture that he's actually buying it. His weakness is showing. It pokes through, raw and pink and wet, like mange on a tribble's anus. And what would you prescribe for this condition, Doctor? This is what I've been waiting for. This is my moment. Get back to your command, I tell him. Get out there and do, and act, before you really do grow old. He thinks, then he stares out the window again. I know I've gotten through to him. Doesn't feel as good as I thought it would. Chapter 3, Preanimate Bullshit. Novelized by David A. Goodman. Narrated by Felicia Day. Okay. Starship log, stardate 8130.4. Log entry by First Officer Parvel Chekhov. Starship reliant on orbital approach to SETI Alpha 6 in connection with Project Genesis. We are continuing our search for a lifeless planet to satisfy the requirements of a test site for the Genesis experiment. So far, no success. On the bridge of the Reliant, Chekhov stared at the view screen and thought, Was that a good log entry? He really didn't care. He knew the captain made him record the log when there was nothing to say. They hadn't even looked at SETI Alpha 6. They really should record the log after they examined the planet. Of course, later, Chekhov would admonish himself that he was so annoyed at having to record the log, he didn't notice that there was a planet missing in the SETI Alpha system. If he'd noticed, that might have saved a few headaches. And deaths. Chekhov looked around the bridge. It was smaller than the Enterprises, and kind of dirty. 
There wasn't actual dirt, it just looked unclean. Maybe it was because so many of the officers were old men. Chekhov hated it. The whole fucking ship was a symbol of his stalled career. Standard orbit, Captain Tyrell said. Chekhov watched him as he slowly got up from his chair. Oh, this guy. When Chekhov met him over subspace six months before, he somehow assumed that Tyrell was ready for retirement. Take this first officer job, Chekhov thought, and in a couple of years, Tyrell will step down and the ship would be his. But then Chekhov reported for duty, and on his first day, there was a birthday celebration for the captain. It was Tyrell's 43rd birthday. Chekhov was 44. The captain was younger than him, but it was too late. Chekhov had already taken the job. He was screwed. And he blamed Tyrell for screwing him, even though it wasn't Tyrell's fault. He tried to take comfort in the fact that he was better off than Sulu and Uhura, who were still in the same jobs they'd been in for 20 years. Mr. Beach, any change in the surface skin? Tyrell asked the science officer. Negative, Beach said. The planet's incapable of supporting life. Later, Chekhov would effectively blame Beach for not noticing there was a planet missing in the SETI Alpha system. Beach was the science officer. It was his job to notice the missing planet. As stalled as his career was, they were not going to hang this mess around his neck. Does it have to be completely lifeless? Chekhov asked the captain. He really didn't want to tell the captain about the minor energy flux reading in the dino scanner because that meant they'd have to move on. And this mission was boring as shit. But he had no choice. Don't tell me you found something, Tyrell said. Uh, We picked up a minor energy flux reading on one dino scanner. Tyrell was annoyed and Chekhov didn't blame him. Who knows how long it would take to find another lifeless planet? This mission could go on for another year. Maybe the scanner's in need of adjustment, Tyrell said. I suppose it could be a piece of preanimate matter caught in the Matrix, Chekhov said. Well, that was total bullshit. When had a piece of preanimate matter ever gotten caught in the Matrix? The technical manual for the dino scanner said you had to be careful about preanimate matter getting caught in the Matrix, but <laughs> Chekhov had never seen it happen. God, he was so tired of this crap. Chekhov was then slightly taken aback that this paper-thin excuse was enough for Tyrell. Get on the comm link to Dr. Marcus, Tyrell said to the communications officer, Commander Kyle. Yes, sir, Kyle said. That guy used to run the transporter on the Enterprise, and now he's here answering the phone. That's a crappy career. But then Chekhov started to wonder how old Kyle was. He was older than Chekhov, had to be, right? He could look it up, but he didn't want to, because if that guy turned out to be younger, oof. No, he definitely had to be older. Maybe it's something we could transplant, Tyrell said. It was clear to Chekhov that Tyrell wanted out of this turkey of a mission just as bad as Chekhov did, but this was a really stupid idea. What, they were going to find some life down there and move it to another planet? Oh, yeah, Dr. Marcus was really going to go for that. Some piece of life that came out of that crappy biosphere and she was going to tell us to move it to another crappy biosphere? (laughs) What an idiot captain, Chekhov thought. Ah, you know what she will say, Chekhov said wearily. I'm on a ship of losers, Chekhov thought. And I'm one of them. Let me get this straight. Something you can transplant? Carol Marcus said. She was in the main laboratory of the regular one scientific research laboratory. The other scientists in the lab on the upper and lower levels around her acted like they were still at work, but she knew they were all listening. They'd all been living there for almost a year in orbit around regular one, tired of looking at the same six people every day. They wanted to go home, but their fate was in the hands of these two Starfleet bozos on the other side of her comm screen. How hard is it to find a lifeless planet? She could tell that the once enthusiastic Starfleet men had lost all interest in the mission. They just wanted to be done. 
Were they really suggesting that they go down to the planet and find whatever life form they find there that grew up on that planet and then take them to another planet and it would be just fine? They thought that was okay? Didn't that violate their prime directive or something? But doctor, it may only be a piece of preanimate matter, Captain Tyrell said. Then again, it may not. Carol couldn't believe this guy. A particle of preanimate matter caught in the Matrix? When did that ever happen? She'd never seen it. You boys have to be clear on this. There can't be so much as a microbe or the show's off. They stood there looking at her. She laid down the law and they just stared. Now she felt bad. It was only a second, but it felt like forever. And she caved. Oh, well, why don't you have a look? But if it is something that can be moved... You bet, Doctor. We're on our way, Tyrell said, and the picture cut out. She'd fallen right into their trap. They just needed her permission, and they could go ahead with their cockamamie transplant idea. She was so desperate to get off the station, she began to hope that maybe it would work. She looked at the chronometer. 18.30, dinner time. She started shutting down her station and got up to leave. They gave out a nice bath and maybe a half a bottle of wine. Or a whole bottle. Then her son David walked over to join her. Why are we wasting time looking for a planet anyway? David said. We could probably just drop the thing inside a nebula and it would make a planet. Oh, yeah, and if that doesn't work, Carol said. What happens then? I'll have to go find some old boyfriend to take me in. They exited the main laboratory, heading out into the corridor. We don't have kittens. Genesis will work. They'll remember you in one breath with Newton, Einstein, Surak. Thanks a lot, Carol said. No respect for my offspring. They stopped at the intersection. To the left was Carol's quarters, where her bath and bottle of Chateau Picard waited. Teaming up with me for bridge after dinner? David said. Maybe. Carol said, oh, crap. She could tell something was on his mind. No quiet bottle of wine tonight. She was going to have to keep her son company. What's wrong? She said. Not really wanted to hear the answer. She loved her son. She loved that she got to work with him. He was a genius. But sometimes he was just so goddamn needy. Every time we have dealings with Starfleet, I get nervous, David said. We are dealing with something that could be perverted into a dreadful weapon. God, he was so overdramatic. He didn't get that from her. Probably from his father. Remember that overgrown Boy Scout you used to hang around with? He's exactly the kind of guy we should be worried about getting his hands on this. Carol wondered sometimes if it had been a mistake to lie to David and tell him she'd been artificially inseminated. He was probably old enough to know the truth, but she really didn't want to tell him. Just the thought of Kirk got her reminiscing. Like right now, the night they'd conceived David in the men's room at the 602 Club in San Francisco. Up against the wall, dirty, smelly, so hot. Listen, kiddo, Jim Kirk was many things, but he was never a Boy Scout. As she walked away, she decided to hell with cards. She was going to have that wine, and then maybe see if she could dig up some Klingon porn. Chapter 4. It turns out it's SETI Alpha 5, not SETI Alpha 6. Novelized by Andrew Lynn, narrated by Andy Daly. Captain Terrell, stand by to beam down, said Mason Dirth Mordor, moments before he pulled the lever that made Terrell and Chekhov beam down. A few moments later, the two space explorers were down on the surface of the planet, while the spaceship that they had been aboard only moments before continued to float like a moon above them. This was thanks to a kind of teleportation technology. Chekhov didn't understand it. Understanding things just meant more work. We have beamed down, said Captain Terrell over the comlink. Roger that, said Mason Dirth Mordor. Let me know when you want to beam back up. I'll be right here. Thanks, Mason, said Terrell. Awesome work, too. Smooth. Just doing my job, Clark. 
The conversation stopped there, but both of them could tell that the other one was smiling. Chekhov wasn't smiling. He was frowning, deeply, as he looked around the planet for a direction that didn't suck. Chekhov, you sure these are the correct coordinates? Terrell looked over, his tone both jovial and critical, the way you talk to a baby trying to eat a hot dog from the middle outwards. What a dick. Like it was Chekhov's job to keep track of this stuff. That was Mason Dearthmorder's job. But everyone loved that guy. Nobody liked Chekhov. That was the one thing Chekhov and everybody could agree on. The ship's janitor could run up behind him and yank his pants down in front of the king of Starfleet, and everyone from his majesty down would only think it was hilarious. Chekhov safely rolled his eyes, knowing that Terrell couldn't see into his enormous space helmet. Captain, this is the garden spot of SETI Alpha 6. Good one, he thought to himself, because this wasn't a garden spot. Far from it. He was being sarcastic. Everything was lost in an orange fog of blowing sand except for the occasional rock formation. That was it. The most interesting thing you could say about the planet was that it had almost the same name as the planet where Captain Kirk had stranded a guy named Khan. But that planet was called SETI Alpha 5. This planet was called SETI Alpha 6. Completely different planet. Chekhov smiled to himself, knowing that there was no way he was going to run into Khan during this mission. There was a deafening whooshing of wind, beneath which could barely be heard the beep of a tricorder. Beep, 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 over and over again. Everybody hated that beep. Once you noticed it, you couldn't really tune it out. Maybe you forget it was there for a while, but then you'd notice it again, and somehow that was actually worse. If it found something, it would stop beeping, exactly the opposite of the way you'd think it should work. The noise couldn't be turned off unless you popped out the batteries, and you couldn't do that here because of all this sand blowing around. It would get inside and ruin the device. Chekhov bitched about the tricorders constantly, which is one of the reasons nobody liked him. It was almost as annoying as the beeping itself. Just another thing you had to put up with when you were in Starfleet. The tricorders would also break constantly. They were built from cheap plastic you could bend with your finger. Sometimes you'd drop one or it would fall off a table, and when you picked it back up, you would hear something rattling around inside, like maybe a screw that had come loose or a little chip of the cheap plastic. Yet it would still seem to be working perfectly fine. Was it broken or not? Was it rattling like that before you dropped it? Why was there even an extra screw there in the first place? Maybe it was about to break for real, and if Chekhov could return it to the equipment manager quick enough, it would be the next person's problem, and nobody would know it was actually Chekhov's fault. Not likely. The equipment manager was the beloved asshole Stryker Bossmaster. Everyone always took that guy's side. Was it in spite of the fact that he was a big jerk? No, they loved him because he was a jerk. Everyone loves a jerk as long as they aren't the one the jerk is being a dick to. That was Chekhov. It was always Chekhov. He was lost in these thoughts when Terrell shouted at him, Chekhov, over here! Great, now Terrell was pissed off. He totally hates me, muttered Chekhov. Everybody hates me. Terrell was standing on the edge of a short ridge of rock, looking out over what should have been more of the same. Chekhov went over to see what the big deal was. Terrell turned to him. Those look like cargo carriers. Cargo carriers? That was completely bonkers. Chekhov looked over. Nestled into a shallow valley was a little group of Starfleet cargo carriers. Good ones, too. 
not the kind that Starfleet would just leave in any old place like glorified trash cans. How did they get here? Why would SETI Alpha 6 have cargo carriers on it? But there they were, big rectangular boxes made from corrugated zaxtheratic steel. That was strong stuff. A Clamtarian Cramstododo couldn't punch a hole in those things with either butt antler. Nor could a Trimstrothic Drogtoron envelop and digest it with its pre-fisted trianus. In fact, it would even be near impossible for a Stoicacid on Shellos Dorgoff to penetrate them with its cavernous superatomic hard-on. The more Chekhov thought about it, the more it became clear that even a juvenile Braptixerty Fusktorpon with a fully intact penile murder flap would almost certainly fail to plant a single one of its donk-pastic hemorrhoidal pseudo-fetuses inside one of them. Starfleet cargo carriers were strong stuff. Fortunately, one of them had a door on the side. Chekhov and Terrell made their way down and contemplated the door. It appeared to be unlocked. Hey, give me a hand, said Terrell. With the sum total of their strength, they managed to open it and go in. Their helmets immediately began to fog up with what was clearly normal air, so they removed them and looked around with sweaty heads. People had been using these carriers as living quarters. There was crap strewn all over the place. Unmade bunks, a half-played game of checkers, and a lasagna were three of the things they could see. Looking closer, you could tell that the checkers were actually rusty gears and little stones, which Chekhov thought was a cute touch. There was something that looked like a jetpack stuck to the wall. It probably wasn't, but Chekhov was still impressed. What the hell happened here, said Terrell. If they crashed, then where's the rest of the ship? It was a good question that would never be answered. It didn't matter. Chekhov wasn't listening. He had found something odd on the other side of the room. Terrell came over to see. It was a clear glass tank full of sand. Something inside was making the entire thing jiggle around like a cheap prop. Terrell, with genuine interest, got into a crouch for a closer look. Something was moving under the dirt. Chekhov was pleased that he had been the first one to find something cool, but was already bored, so he wandered over to the other side of the room. What the hell is that? he said. It was a bookshelf so maybe he shouldn't have sounded so surprised. There were a bunch of books on it, Dante's Inferno, Melville's Moby Dick, and the Holy Bible by the ancient land wizard Jesus Christ. There were more of them, all the same kind of really old book that nobody reads for fun. Nothing exciting there. Thinking quick, Chekhov looked around for something else to pretend to have found so interesting. Above the books dangled a nylon strap fastened by a steel buckle with SS Botany Bay printed on it in all caps. Something stirred in Chekhov's mind. Maybe this actually was an interesting find. Botany Bay, he said out loud, but by then he had already figured it out. His eyes bulged out of his face, making space for all the scary thoughts that were filling his mind. Oh no, he spun around and booked it over to Terrell. We've got to get out of here now, damn! Terrell was still looking at the thing in the sand tank. What about the tricorder, he said. The tricorder had stopped beeping, its stupid way to let you know it had found something. Terrell reached down and grabbed it off his belt. He was too focused on what it wanted to tell him to notice the sound of something rattling around inside it. A little screw, maybe. Chekhov shouted with the impatience of raw fear. Hurry! Never mind that! Hurry! Hurry! Chekhov, what's the matter with you? Chekhov! 
Of course it was Chekhov's fault that something was the matter, like he would ever have a good reason to say anything at all. Terrell got up and went after him. Come on, hurry! Chekhov yelled again, the last word muffled by his helmet as he slammed it down over his head. Terrell followed suit. He had never seen Chekhov freak out like this. Moments later, he was following him out the door into the angry orange clouds of sand, but Chekhov had stopped short, just a few feet away from the cargo carrier. Terrell almost ran into him, but before he could think of some cutting remark, he saw what Chekhov was looking at. They were surrounded by a group of people, shrouded as much by their messed-up ragged clothes as by the blowing sands, blowing like the winds of violent death. Up on the ship, a guy shouted into the comm, Starship Reliant to Captain Terrell, this is Commander Kyle. Will you please respond, Captain? Kyle Wimplington waited a few moments, fighting back tears. They had been gone too long, at least that's how he felt. He frequently overreacted like this. He was way too fixated on Terrell, who was a source of constant worry for him. Where was he? What was he doing? Does he like me? Terrell was well aware of this infatuation and used it to his advantage, asking Kyle to get him stuff or clean up the captain's quarters. Sometimes he'd tell Kyle to wait outside the ready room because he had something he wanted him to do. Then later, he'd pretend to have forgotten all about it. Oh, right, Kyle, he'd say after finding him standing at attention just outside the door. Sorry, I totally forgot about you. Mark took care of that for me. Mark is such a great guy. He might be my favorite. Captain Terrell, respond, please! Kyle, quaking with panic, looked up at Lieutenant Commander Fang Jamrocket, who was standing behind him. Let's give them a little more time, was the cold reply from Fang. Kyle was always like this. Fang should have gotten used to it by now, but really it just got more and more annoying. Sometimes he felt like he was the only person on the ship who actually did his job. Kyle just spent his days crying like a baby. Mason Dearthmortar and Strike Bossmaster were both the captain's perfect little pets. They didn't have to do shit if they didn't want to, which was always. Then there was Chekhov. All he ever did was talk about his old Captain James Kirk and how he was so much cooler than Captain Terrell. Probably true, but still. Then there was the Starship Enterprise. Forget it. It was faster, bigger, and more badass than the Reliant. If the Enterprise is so great, then why don't you just go back? Fang said to him once. Oh, right. They didn't want you. So why don't you go peel your ass off Terrell's ass and get Stryker to fix that tricorder that you broke? Back on the surface, Chekhov and Terrell had been rudely marched into the cargo carrier by those mysterious space hobos. Chekhov took another moment to marvel at the quality of the carrier's construction. To actually see a Starfleet cargo carrier up close is to know that even the fearsome Skoski's Kogoski in Agelnigang, with its infinite subdimensional dick bundles, couldn't power thrust any part of its inverted poo dangles through those vacuum-sealed, triple-reinforced walls. It turned out that the leader of this ragged crew of people was Khan. Yep, the same guy I was talking about before. He was older, but still the biggest hunk in the room. Long silver hair cascaded down over his shoulders, partially covering up the blue tie-dyed scarf that would have looked dumb on anyone else. Not on him. Not when it had to get out of the way of his bulging chest and unnecessarily firm slab of pure muscle. Chekhov had already met Khan and knew what to expect, but even he had to stifle an admiring whistle. Khan walked up to Terrell. I don't know you. 
Then, turning to Chekhov, But you, I never forget a face. Was it possible? Did Khan remember him? Nobody had ever remembered him before. His teachers back in Starfleet Academy would ask him daily if he was in the right class. His own mom nearly tried to give birth twice, forgetting that he had already come out. Chekhov had gotten in the habit of working his own name into conversation just to save himself the embarrassment of being forgotten. He even adopted a silly accent in a vain attempt to give himself a single distinguishing quality. It didn't work, and now he felt he had to keep doing it. What he didn't realize was that the Universal Translator was giving everyone the same silly Italian accent. The Universal Translator was super racist. Mr. Chekhov, isn't it? continued Khan. Chekhov nearly fainted with delight. Maybe he did faint. It's not like anyone would have cared. Recovering from his fugue state of intense, blistering joy, Chekhov found that Khan was already in the middle of telling Terrell who he was and why he was here. It was a long story, but the gist of it was that 20 years ago, he and the crew of the SS Botany Bay had been stranded on this planet. They were all a bunch of superhumanly strong and smart people, genetically bred back in 1996 to be better looking and more fun than you. Too awesome to live, too sweet to die. They had been frozen in cryogenic sleep and sent off into space to make somebody else look bad. Some 200 years later, Chekhov's previous ship, the Enterprise, came across them. Captain Kirk, not knowing any better, defrosted them. Oh, God. Kirk and Khan. Let's just say they deserved each other. They got into some shit, but Kirk won the day, leaving Khan and his crew behind on SETI Alpha 5. Some people... Chekhov, thought this was a dick move. What? said Kirk at the time. What did I do wrong? I was doing them a favor. SETI Alpha 5 is a great planet. Nice weather, decent natural resources. I was thinking of stranding myself there. Which was more or less true. Chekhov was feeling left out of the conversation and a bit insulted. When he finally managed to get a word in edgewise, he couldn't help lashing out a bit. So what are you doing on this planet? SETI Alpha 6 sucks! On SETI Alpha 5 there was a life! Why did you come here? There's nothing to do! No wonder you became such assholes! This is SETI Alpha 5! Khan was uncharacteristically losing his cool. SETI Alpha 6 was a completely different planet. Six months after Kirk left us here, it conveniently blew up and knocked SETI Alpha 5 into a different, worse orbit. So while this used to be a nice planet with water and trees, it turned into a sandy disaster. Okay, that legitimately sucked, but it was too late to back down. Chekhov grasped for a different straw. Captain Kirk was your host. You repaid his hospitality by trying to steal his ship and murder him. Khan, realizing that they were just talking past each other, decided to steer things in another direction. He had come up with a great idea and was enjoying the feeling. Turning back to Terrell, he said, Allow me to introduce you to SETI Alpha 5's only remaining indigenous life form. He walked over to the clear plastic tank, produced a pair of tongs, and started feeling around for whatever was in there. Bingo! A hissing creature about the size of a potato lunged out of the dirt, directly into the waiting metal prongs. It was an earwig sort of thing, covered with armored plates that ran head to tail like an armadillo. What do you think, said Khan. 
It killed twenty of my people, including my beloved wife. Khan stopped there. That was the ultimate conversation killer, which was exactly the point. A second pair of tongs came out, and Khan proceeded to do the grossest possible thing and poked the prongs down between two of the plates, emerging first with one writhing, gooey little slug, then another. He placed them in a small metal bowl and carried them over to give Chekhov and Terrell a better look. Not all at once, he continued, and not instantly, to be sure. You see, their young enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. This has the effect of rendering the victim extremely susceptible to suggestion. Later, as they grow, there follows madness and death. Khan, listen to me! Chekhov tried to sound as authoritative as possible, but all that Khan heard was, Mamma mia, shut up, you meatball of face, and listen to what this meatball got to say. Khan ignored the interruption. These are pets, of course, not quite domesticated. Captain Kirk was only doing his duty, Chekhov said with instant regret. It was a lame thing to say. Khan walked over and dropped the two little slugs into Chekhov and Terrell's empty helmets, which his men then put back on their heads. The slugs oozed onto their faces, then wiggled into their ears. The two grown men screamed and rolled around on the ground before realizing it actually wasn't so bad and settled down. That's better. Now, tell me why you are here, and tell me where I may find James Kirk. Chapter 5. This one has farts and lady jokes. Novelized by Liz Lent. Narrated by Mary Jo Peel. Kirk turned the page of his book and tried to focus on the duty ahead. It was difficult not to be distracted. Having already read How to Look Like a Guy in Charge while Mitigating Naturally Off-Putting and Sexist Character Flaws While Slowly Turning Pages Without Taking in Any Information, Part 2. He'd been a big fan of Part 1, but this volume had less sex and only one cartoon. Sighing, he closed the book, silently composing his one-star Goodreads review, which would read, Not Enough Sex and Only One Cartoon. He heard a voice over the radio say, Enterprise to Admiral Kirk's shuttle. You're cleared for docking. Approach portside Torpedo Bay. Kirk rose and went into the cockpit where Sulu was piloting and Uhura was there just because. Sometimes she liked to tag along but then randomly disappear from future scenes where no mention would ever be made of the fact that here she is now, sitting in the goddamn cockpit, and then five minutes from now, when everyone else is getting off the shuttle, she's nowhere to be seen. Where did she go? Is she circling the block for a parking spot? Did she go to the duty-free shop? Don't worry, we'll never, ever know. Anyway, back in the shuttle where Uhura was maybe having a Schrodinger's cat-like experience, Kirk stood behind Sulu's shoulder and watched as the Enterprise came into view. It was pretty big and white, like Kirk's neighborhood back home. Enterprise, this is Admiral Kirk's party on final approach, said Sulu. <laughs> you bet it is, thought Kirk. He prided himself on his ability to party, although lately he'd felt uncertain about his DJing skills. He just couldn't get into new music. 
too anemic and he didn't even want to get started on the topic of auto-tuning, which was a goddamn abomination, letting any old pretty face squawk his way to the top with vocal lies. Secretly, Kirk wished he'd had auto-tuning when he fronted his band, Kirk and no one else, in high school. Technology was never there when you needed it, he thought as he watched the futuristic space shuttle dock with the futuristic spaceship. Anyway, back to reality. Here he was, crammed into his admiral's outfit, about to spend an afternoon with a bunch of kids. Boring. I hate inspections, he said. Sulu, chipper as always, and so fucking contrarian, chimed in. I'm delighted. Any chance to go aboard the Enterprise? Sigh. Whatever. Kirk just stared out the window and silently thanked the universe that he only had to spend an afternoon with this dork and not go off on another half-cocked adventure that would go on for at least another 90 minutes, not including the credits. Bones came up behind them, sneaking in like a mitten-pawed cat, quietly shedding and attempting to lick himself. Kirk nodded, hello, and tapped his foot as Sulu took the longest route possible to their parking spot. Kirk knew it was because Sulu didn't feel comfortable backing into a spot. Parallel parking freaked him the fuck out, and it showed in his shuttle piloting. Kirk decided to play nice and said to Sulu, Well, I, for one, am delighted to have you at the helm for three weeks. I don't think these kids can steer. They finally docked and were greeted at the airlock by Spock and a Vulcan who looked just like a TV actress it would be super easy to make cheers and Scientology jokes about. Permission to come aboard, Captain, said Kirk, not really meaning it. He didn't need anyone's permission to do anything and quietly farted just to prove the point. Spock raised an eyebrow but pretended to ignore the Admiral's indiscretion. When was he not farting? That's what you had to ask yourself these days about Kirk. It was an embarrassing thing to witness, even for a Vulcan. Welcome, Admiral. I think you know my training crew. Certainly, they have come to know you. Because I told them about the farts, he thought. Yes, we've been through death and life together, said Kirk, also thinking of the farts. Some weird lady next to them blew a whistle, but no puppies scampered forth. Turned out not to be a dog whistle, which was disappointing, so they all shrugged and went to visit what your narrator thought was the engine room, but turned out not to be the engine room at all, despite being filled with engineers. There in the indeterminate room, Kirk spotted his favorite Scottish stereotype and former engineer, Scotty, who also was not a dog, and Kirk felt sad at the sad lack of canines on this visit. He'd brought the milk bones for nothing. Again. Kirk inquired about Scotty's health and general well-being. I had a wee bout, sir, but Dr. McCoy pulled me through, Scotty said. There's going to be a drinking joke now because Scottish people are drunk bastards. A wee bout of what? Kirk asked, walking right into the whole damn thing. Shore leave, Admiral, said Bones. There it was. Just move along. Don't even look at it. Kirk next approached a short, skinny fellow who he recognized from a bunch of 1970s Disney movies, but couldn't quite place and wasn't worth the time to look it up on IMDb because he wouldn't recognize the guy's name anyway. (sighs) Suffice to say, this little fellow would be dead by the end of Act Two. 
Kirk decided not to tell him all that and ruin his day, so instead he cheerfully said, And who do we have here? Midshipman, first class, Peter Preston, engineer's mate, sir. First training voyage, Mr. Preston, and last, Kirk thought. Yes, sir. Oh, man, dial it down a bit. I see, Kirk said. Sucker. What? Nothing. Kirk kept walking and asked Scotty, shall we start with the engine room? Scotty, the cocky drunk Scottish bastard, cockily said, we'll see you there, sir. And everything is in order. Alphabetical order. Finally, Kirk, being a cocky dick back, said, that'll be a pleasant surprise, Mr. Scott. Spock spoke. I'll see you on the bridge, Admiral. Kirk had totally forgotten he was there, as had we all. Not if I see you first, Kirk said playfully tousling Spock's hair. Spock vowed for the thousandth time to kill that man, first chance he got. Savik, the name of the character who totally looks like Kirstie Alley, blew Spock's brain pan by speaking in Vulcan and spawning a whole new font in the subtitles. He's never what I expected, sir, she said. Spock responded in Vulcan and with a similar font. What surprises you? He's so... Human. Nobody's perfect, Savik. And they laughed and laughed and laughed in that quiet, grim, mirthless way that so many people mistake for frowning and not laughing. Meanwhile, back in the actual engine room, for God's sake, yes, this one really does look like an engine room. I don't know how I could have mistaken the other place for an engine room, but to be fair, everything is smooth and futuristic, and Jordy wasn't there, and that's usually how I know it's the engine room. So just stop getting on my back about this stuff. Jesus, Mom! Anyway, Kirk walked into the engine room and greeted a bunch of engineers, who he totally ignored. Instead, choosing to make Scotty feel like less of a man by taking a handkerchief and wordlessly wiping off a console, which Scotty, honest to God, had worked days to polish. Scotty responded by smiling through his drunken Scottish tears. He squared his shoulders, ready for the Admiral's next cruelty. Well, Mr. Scott, are your cadets capable of handling a minor training cruise? Motherfucker, are yours? God damn, this guy was a prick. Scotty was so glad he wouldn't have to see him again, barring any unexpected plot twists. Give the word, Admiral, Scotty said, draping every word with abuse, none of which was heard because Scottish accents are ridiculous and everyone just thought he was joking about leprechauns. They laughed politely. When the confusion had subsided, Kirk said, Mr. Scott, the word is given. Aye, sir, said Scotty, but he didn't really mean it. Kirk stepped on an elevator that appeared out of nowhere and began his slow apotheosis. Bones, looking up to his godlike overlord, said, Admiral, what about the rest of the inspection? Fuck no! Kirk stage whispered and flipped the bird to everyone in the engine room. Things got weird as it took a good minute and a half for the elevator to lift him out of sight, and holding his finger out for that long started to feel awkward. He regretted the execution of his action, not the intent. Outside, the Enterprise was auditioning for a film version of Cabaret as stage lights flipped on dramatically, highlighting its seductive white curves. It was just about to belt out Willkommen when we cut to the bridge and its chance for the EGOT was lost again. As Kirk and Bones stepped from the elevator, Sulu announced, Admiral on the bridge. 
The bridge was bustling with activity as everyone tried to pretend they knew what they were doing, flipping switches and tapping little glowy lights and wantonly launching torpedoes. It was pretty convincing. But that's when Spock began playing his dangerous, dangerous little game. Letting a woman, a woman, mind you, drive the ship. He turned to Savik, who was sitting at one of those wall consoles, pretending to do things like everyone else. It actually looked like she was on the verge of a Connect Four when Spock rudely interrupted her. Lieutenant Savik, have you ever piloted a starship out of space dock? Well, never, sir, she said, knowing like everyone else that women weren't built to pilot golf carts, let alone spaceships, because how... Could they get their arms around their breasts to steer? It was simple biology, for God's sake. Kirk and Bones glanced at each other, praying this farce would end here. But no, Spock was a dangerous, adrenaline junkie who craved near death and total destruction. He stood up menacingly. Take her out, Mr. Savick, he ordered, caring not for the lives in his hands. Savick stood and walked past Kirk and Bones and sat in the captain's chair. Spock, trying to fool everyone into submission with false jollity, said, For everything, there is a first time, Lieutenant. Don't you agree, Admiral? Kirk, terrified in equal measure of his former first officer and the concept of a woman at the wheel, managed a tentative, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bones, who'd seen so much he wasn't afraid of anything anymore except the power of the unspent love deep in his soul, looked at Kirk and said, Would you like a tranquilizer? Kirk shook his head. At this point, Savick totally, and perhaps inevitably, drove the ship into the side of the docking station, causing a horrible scraping sound that only abated when she finally got the ship over the curb, narrowly missing a designer shoe warehouse while shouting, I love the sails, don't you? And then finally gunning the engines so the space tires squealed. And they were off. Chapter 6, Showtime. Novelized and narrated by Kevin Shinnick. The space lab, known as Regular One, made its way over the curvature of the planet's atmosphere not unlike the seti eel that now made its way over the curvature of Pavel Chekhov's brain, the only difference being the eel didn't require scheduled union breaks. It had been two days since the Botany Bay leader placed the larva into the Starfleet commander's ear, rendering him susceptible to Khan's suggestions, an act which, moving forward, would forever be referred to as slipping a Mickey into a white Russian but for now was merely a nameless but much-needed step if Khan was to use Chekhov as a puppet to retrieve information about Project Genesis, a process that could create life in areas where there was none, and a precursor to Project Phil Collins, which could remove life from any festive atmosphere. But as the seti eel dragged its tentacles over Chekhov's membrane on its way toward his cerebral cortex, an unexpected side effect had occurred— Hidden memories, some lost to time, others buried out of fear or embarrassment, resurfaced in a manner so vivid, Chekhov could see them as clear as the nipples on Khan's muscular pecs. Memories, like the teenage taunts he suffered for having such a thick Russian accent, despite being a fourth-generation family living in San Francisco. Or the time his mother found him logging on to pravdahub.core, But mostly, it was the debacle of the sixth-grade play that came rushing back, 
an event so traumatic he considered it his most embarrassing entry among all his checkoff logs, second only to his decision to refer to anything as a checkoff log. Pavel Chekhov's father, Havel, was a huge fan of the theater. In fact, he had named his son Pavel in the hopes that they would one day form their own theater troupe, going so far as to having the slogan, Havel and Pavel, a father-son act that's incredibly novel, shaved into the side of a bear. Like many Russians, Havel was exceptionally proud of his surname and would often suggest he was related to the famous 19th century playwright Anton Chekhov the same way people tend to claim a shared lineage with the 19th century Astors, the 20th century Yankovics, or the 21st century CryptoArena.coms. So it was with particular pride that Havel told his friends that his son had been cast in his first school play, a theatrical rendering of the film Enemy Mine, which had originally starred Academy Award winner Louis Gossett Jr., back when awards existed, and a then-strapping Dennis Quaid. Granted, Chekhov would only have one line, the ever-important, by order of Willis E. Davidge. But Havel saw it as a launching point for his son's acting career. And Pavel saw it as a chance to shed the stigma of having a Russian accent and a bad pageboy haircut. So much attention was paid to character development, however, that Chekhov spent very little time on his actual line. In fact, when he made his entrance, he ad-libbed the phrase, What's up? trying to sound as American as he could. But when the non-binary, horoscope-avoidant biped, playing the general of the bilateral Terran alliance, uttered his cue of, Upon whose orders? Chekhov froze. By order of the... He stammered before going blank. Too embarrassed to call for line, Chekhov resorted to the oft-used theatrical tradition of blinking three times in the hopes of signaling to the stage manager that he needed help. Sadly, not only was the stage manager not up on his theatrical traditions, but also he was blind, since, ironically, another theater tradition was to go the non-traditional route when hiring both cast and crew. And so, stage manager Johnson, who coincidentally was on the waiting list for Project Wonder, a process which could hopefully create sight where none existed, did not see his plea. As a result, Chekhov stared off into the distance, searching for the words, but finding, instead, only his father's look of shame. The children laughed and pointed, hurling slurs like, Amateur! Foreigner! And the particularly biting, Let Yakov Smirnov the Ninth do it! It was this debacle that made Chekhov quit the theater altogether and enlist in Starfleet, a decision he hoped would take him light years away from this awkward moment. And yet, ironically, here he was again, years later, putting on another play of sorts for the crew of Regular One. Only this time, Chekhov would not be performing for his father, but rather for the notorious Khan Noonien Singh, whose review would be nothing short of life or death. As Chekhov's fingers shakily reached for the intercom that would open a channel to regular one, his brain ran over his, this time, well-rehearsed lines. He imagined the scientists of the space lab talking about their computers the same way Chekhov was thinking about his own brain. I don't think there's another piece of information we could squeeze into the memory bank, one would say. Next time, we'll design a bigger one. But Chekhov wanted to prove he didn't need a bigger brain. His current one would be enough. He would be enough. And with that, Chekhov pressed the intercom, sending a signal to the ship. On the deck of Regular One, the ensign known as Sleeveless Steve alerted the crew to the call. Dr. Marcus... 
comp pick coming in on Hyper Channel. It's the Starship Reliant. On screen, please, she replied. The monitor came to life, and Chekhov was greeted by the faces of Dr. Carol Marcus and her son, Science Officer David. Granted, it had been a risk naming her son Science Officer David, but fortunately he did, in fact, wind up in that line of work. Their expressions were friendly enough, but for some reason Chekhov was inexplicably hoping for the glare of some imaginary stage lights to shield him from their possible judgmental reactions. Oh well, he thought. What was it his third-generation father used to say? Ah, yes. The show must go on. Chekhov took a deep breath and launched into a performance 30 years in the making. Come in, please, he began. This is Reliant calling Regular One. Repeat, this is USS Reliant, he said, smiling inwardly at his decision to ad-lib the word repeat before adding the more detailed description of USS. Was he being too cocky, he feared? Too showy? Remembering back to his ad-lib moment of What's up? No, he thought. This was not a misstep. This was him merely wetting his whistle. If he could convince the crew of his authenticity with his first line, the rest would be a piece of baklava. Dr. Marcus responded, Commander, we are receiving. This is regular one. Go ahead. A spark flickered in Chekhov's eyes. Showtime. Ah, Dr. Marcus, he beamed. Good. We're en route to you and should be there in three days. A look of confusion came over the doctor's face. En route? Why? We weren't expecting you for another three months. Has something happened? Nothing has happened, he said in his most cheerful manner. Seti Alpha 6 has checked out. Careful, Pavel, he thought to himself. Feel the enthusiasm. Don't show it. Then I don't understand, she continued. Why are you coming? We have received new orders, he interrupted. Upon arrival at Regular One, all materials of Project Genesis will be transferred to this ship for immediate testing on SETI Alpha 6. Chekhov could tell from David's reaction that his performance was convincing. Who in the hell do they think they are? The young man shouted. Please be quiet, Dr. Marcus yelled trying to calm the team before turning her attention back to the bearer of bad news. Commander Chekhov, this is completely irregular. I have my orders, he sneered, knowing he had hooked them. In fact, he was about to triumphantly end his transmission, his thoughts already on where they would hold the closing night party, when David added, Who gave the order? Chekhov froze. Flashes of his long-ago castmate asking him, Upon whose orders? echoed through his brain. Who did give the order? Willis E. Davidge, he thought? No, that was years ago. This was now. Who gave the order? He knew this. He had rehearsed this. And yet here he was again, sweating like a Klingon on karaoke night. The image of his father's disappointed look filled Chekhov's eyes. The laughter of the children pierced his ears. No seti eels were needed this time. These images slithered down memory lane on their own volition. Chekhov tried to speak hoping his brain would remember the line before he reached the end of his sentence. The order comes from... But nothing came. Chekhov instinctively blinked three times, signaling to a non-existent stage manager, but this time there was no one in the wings except a heartless, genetically enhanced theater critic. Chekhov knew better than to look to Khan for assistance. He had seen Khan's wrath in action, felt his anger, knew his hatred for... Suddenly, a smile formed on Chekhov's face. Admiral James T. Kirk, he finally said with relief, the line rushing back to his mind almost as quick as the blood rushing back to his face. 
Chekhov's relief was so great, it blocked out the chaos that had now erupted from the unhappy crew. I knew it! I knew it! David yelled. All along, the military wanted to get their hands on... This is completely improper, Commander Chekhov, Dr. Marcus interrupted. I have no intention of allowing Reliant or any other unauthorized personnel access to our work or materials. But Chekhov was too elated to care. I'm sorry you feel that way, Doctor. Admiral Kirk's orders are confirmed. Please plan to deliver Genesis to us upon our arrival. Reliant out. As he depressed the intercom, Chekhov breathed a sigh of relief before turning to face his biggest critic. Khan, who had remained silent this whole time, finally glanced at Chekhov. An eternity seemed to pass, but then, unprompted, Khan spoke. Well done, Commander. Chekhov smiled, and out of some ingrained sense of obligation, added, You realize, sir, they will attempt to contact Admiral Kirk and confirm the order. But both men knew this was irrelevant, because this moment was no longer about Project Genesis. It was about Project Chekhov. For new confidence had been created in a world where there was none before. Chekhov knew it. Khan knew it. And he emphasized as much with a slow nod of the head. Savik ran toward the Enterprise's elevator. Hold, please, she said, with a tremendous show of cool-headed logic. The sort of logic that one would think could, for example, someday be used to recognize if a religion was actually just a multi-million dollar Tupperware scam for Hollywood celebs, or if, say, a former TV host turned president were actually a vaguely sentient sack of wet, rotting circus peanuts, but today was only used to alert Shatner to keep the door open. Lieutenant, are you wearing your hair differently? Shatner shatnered. It's still regulation, Admiral, she said, with what would seem, if she were human, like a slight blush. Shatner checked her up and down, noting her breasts seemed very regulation indeed. Indeed. May I speak, sir? Savick asked, despite the fact that talking to ask if you can talk is not very logical at all, to be honest. What are we playing at here? Self-expression doesn't seem to be one of your problems, Shatner responded. It was his best line, and yet, for reasons he could not understand, she didn't swoon, which reminded him of another test she'd recently failed. You're bothered by your performance on the Kobayashi Maru. I failed to resolve the situation, she replied. There is no correct resolution. It's a test of character. May I ask how you dealt with the test, she asked. Shatner paused. All of the many human and half-alien children he'd certainly fathered and abandoned came to him in an instant, filling him with an overwhelming need to dad joke just this once. You may ask, he replied, so goddamn pleased with himself you could smell it. It smelled of hot dogs and someone spilled Miller Lite. That's a little joke, he added. Humor, Savick answered. It is a difficult concept. It is not logical. Your comedians say they are stand-up when you can clearly see from their weak thighs they spend most time sitting down. When they are happy, they say they killed but that is something they only do driving home after a show because the venue paid them in whiskey. When they are not happy, they say they bombed, but bombs kill many people, which should therefore make them happy. Is it not so? They have many discussions about punching up and punching down, but I have seen very few who are able to punch at all. They mostly run away. Some hide. They ask, what is the deal, but do not answer. I am left wondering, what is the deal with starship food and... Admiral Kirk, the intercom buzzed, fortunately. Kirk here. 
I have an urgent contact from Space Lab Radio 1 for you, sir, Dr. Carol Marcus. Eager to escape the chick who was hot until she started talking comedy, Shatner responded, I'll take it in my quarters, and rushed out the elevator doors. On the Zoom call in his room, Shatner's old flame, Dr. Carol Marcus, appeared. Jim, can you read me? I can hear you, Dr. Carol Marcus. What's wrong? What's the matter? Why are you taking Genesis away from us? Dr. Carol Marcus implored. Taking Genesis? Who's taking Genesis? It wasn't Phil Collins' fault. Peter Gabriel chose to leave. Jim, did you mute? I can't hear you. Hit the mute button. It's on the bottom. Jim, did you give the order? Jim, unmute yourself. This is your ship. How do you still not know how to use this? What order? Captain Shatner asked. I can't see you. Did you turn off your camera? Who's taking Genesis? Which album? Why can't I see you? This is becoming the land of confusion. The screen transformed into the TV from Poltergeist, but Dr. Carol Marcus's disjointed voice was still coming through. Please help us, Jim. I will not let them have Genesis without proper authorization. Whose authority? Only Banks and Rutherford really have final say. What is happening? Control what's happening! Transmission jammed at the source, sir. Alert Starfleet headquarters. I want to talk to Starfleet Command. Meanwhile, aboard the supersized satellite of love known as Regula One, the transmission had failed, and Dr. Carol Marcus was trying to quiet her arguing crew, who feared they'd been abandoned. Her curly-haired son, David, who she apparently had as a teenager, which, frankly, invites a lot of additional questions that no brain-altering earworms are going to answer, but was at least worth mentioning, was furious. He knew the score. I tried to tell you before, David shouted. Scientists have always been pawns of the military. But the, come on, isn't she too young to be his mother, Dr. Carol Marcus, was having none of it. Starfleet has kept the peace for a hundred years. I cannot and will not subscribe to your interpretation of this event, she retorted with the confidence of a woman who'd never questioned why the cops who pulled her over had never once given her a ticket. Shatner was pacing on the Enterprise as Spock, always the steady hand, patiently waited. We have a problem. Something may be wrong on regular one. We've been ordered to investigate. If memory serves, Spock replied, as though his memory could fail, as though he wasn't perfect, as though his ears were curved like some kind of woman-chasing, human-shaped asswad. Regular One is a scientific research laboratory. Shatner ignored him, searching the room instead for either a hot lady or something that reflected his own face back to stare at. Neither available, he settled for silently undressing the luscious curve of a chair's arm. I told Starfleet Command, all we have was a boatload of children, but we're the only ship in the quadrant. Spock, these cadets of yours, how good are they? How will they respond under real pressure, he asked, wondering if that chair's legs went all the way up. As with all living things, each according to his gifts, Spock said, like that was any damn help at all. Of course, the ship is yours. No, that won't be necessary, at least not after I fuck this chair, Shatner thought. Just get me to regular one. As a teacher on a training mission, I am content to command the Enterprise, Spock said. But if we are to go to actual duty, it is clear that the senior officer on board must assume the command. God, he was exhausting. It may be nothing, Shatner said, now thinking of a chair showroom he once saw that had, like, so many sexy chairs, just a ton, all of them crazy hot. Garbled communications, you take the ship. Shatner, you proceed from a false assumption. I'm a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. Yeah, I know you're fucking perfect, Spock. I get it. You don't have to fucking remind me every time. I should not remind you of that which you know so well, Spock said, perfectly ignoring Shatner's tone and the way he kept licking his lips while looking at the furniture. If I may be so bold, it was a mistake for you to accept a promotion. 
Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. I would not presume to debate you, Shatner answered. That is wise. I'd have to set up my podcast for that, and the microphones are in the other room. In any case, were I to invoke logic, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or of the one. Neo? Heard of him? Neat guy. Kept going on about some spoon or no spoon. Maybe it was a fork? I don't know. He was all bendy. We didn't hang out long, Shatner replied. Spock nodded once, briskly. You're my superior officer. You're also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Shatner eyed him up and down. Maybe later there was work to do. The two strode into the bridge home. Shatner took control. An emergency situation has arisen. By order of Starfleet Command, as you know, 1,800 hours, I'm assuming, command of this vessel. Duty officer, open the ship's log. Plot a course for Space Laboratory Regular 1. Prepare for warp speed. A student raised his hand. So, like, does this count for our grade? The answer was lost. The ship jetted forward into a laser Floyd show, and everyone braced for the vibes, unaware those vibes were about to shift. Meanwhile, in another different yet oddly similar part of space, like Space Canada or something, the ship Reliant continued flying, or hurtling, or swimming. Course to intercept the Enterprise ready, sir, said a 90s chud aboard the Reliant. Khan's chest beamed back. Excellent. May I speak, the chud continued. We're all with you, sir, but consider this. We are free. We have a ship and the means to go where we will. We have escaped permanent exile. You approved your superior intellect and defeated the plans of Admiral Kirk and do not need to defeat him again. We have a ton of weed, and I'm pretty sure we just passed a planet that had signs for Froyo. Khan's chest sparkled. His nipples blinked. The mouthful of his abs pursed. He tasks me. He tasks me, and I shall have him. Have you ever read Moby Dick? Because it has some great stuff in there, the chest continued. No reason. I was just asking. Anyway, I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares Maelstrom, and round Perdition's Flames before I give him up. Prepare to alter course. The Enterprise warped down. Space Station, Regular One, please come in, Comms tried. It's no use. There's no response from Regular One. But it's no longer jammed, Kirk asked. No, but there's no longer anything. There are two possibilities. They're unable to respond, or they're unwilling to respond. How far are we? Forty-three minutes present speed. Shatner replayed his conversation with Dr. Carol Marcus, mumbling to himself. Give up Genesis, she said. What in God's name does it mean? Give it up to whom? There's no longer a viable frontman. It makes no sense. Overhearing, Spock offered. It might help my analysis if I knew what Genesis was beyond a biblical reference. Shatner's eyes widened. Ahora, have Dr. McCoy join us in my room. Tell him the lamb lies down on Broadway. He'll know what you mean. Savick, you have the calm. Chapter 8, Genesis Begins, by Joe Fusion. Part 1. McCoy stomped down the hallway, lost in thought, but still glowering at the red shirts out of habit. They're back on a ship together one day, and already this old competition was starting up. He found himself obsessively rehearsing what to say, practicing his entrance in his mind, to look cool in front of him. Even after all these years, he was still vying for Kirk's precious favor. He thought back to the beginning and shuddered with embarrassment. Even in his very first week on Enterprise 1.0, he had been desperate to weasel in close to his new captain. 
He and Spock had been walking down a hallway much like this one when he decided to test the mettle of this half-alien weirdo. Listen, Spock, he said. You've got to admit, this captain needs a real man at his side. A whole man as his second-in-command. And that smarmy bastard had paused, raised that accursed eyebrow, and brain-punched him right in the balls. Dr. McCoy, you are definitely a whole and I'm sure you could handle the captain's number two. Not a crack of a smile, only the barest inflection in his voice. Then he walked away while McCoy stood stunned in front of a bunch of red shirts. Red shirts? For years after, he dreamed of scraping off those luscious eyebrows with a rusty laser scalpel. But surely that was behind them now. That was a long, long time ago. Far, far away. And yet here he was, rushing to the Admiral's quarters. The Admiral's quarters. Giddy and anxious as a child on Federation sorting day. Get it together, man. You're acting like a new cadet, wet behind the ears, fresh out of spaceship school. Is that who you are? No. You are Bones. Bones doesn't have nerves like this. Bones isn't brittle or white with fear. He knew this. Deep down in his core, he'd worked his fingers to the breaking point to get here, and he didn't have the timid part left in his body. He was a full-grown man, and it was time to act like it. Oh, and even more than all that, he was a goddamn space doctor. At this point, he was basically king of the space doctors. He'd waved his doctor wand over more dead crew members than any ten other doctors. He'd been splattered with alien fluids that they still couldn't identify. He'd filled out death certificates for stars. He'd once patched up a wounded time worm with nothing more than old dilithium crystals, hot glue, and grit. What could possibly make a man of his caliber quiver? And then he was at the door. Admiral Kirk's door. He steadied himself gathered up every gram of sassy apathy at his disposal. Stepping into the room, he declared, Well, I've got the sick bay ready. Now will someone please tell me what's going on? Silence. Oh. Oh, no. What had he done? How badly had he misread the situation? McCoy, you fool! Empty quiet stretched on and on, out into the boundless darkness of his soul. Spock stared at him, through him, beyond him, in blank triumph. He reeled internally while doing his best not to reel on the outside. His mind grasped for a comeback, but it wasn't made for grasping. His hands were doing an equally bad job of thinking. Finally... After what seemed like several units of time had passed, Kirk's lip curled into the barest hint of a smile. A consolation smirk. The Admiral had thrown him a... thing, and he took it. The other two men turned to face an artful pattern of rectangles and lines on the far wall. These were revealed to be the sliding buttons and painted-over lights of a huge, impossibly advanced computer. The new Enterprise had been outfitted with the Federation's very best technology, and wow, it showed. Kirk spoke, 
and the electronic miracle before them sparkled and shimmered as if it understood. Strange symbols began to fly onto the screen from every direction, up, down, left. McCoy forgot about his own shit. This was real. He watched in awe as Kirk rattled off a steam of arcane security jargon and commands. The mechanical brain lurched into action, a whirlwind of light and sound, incomprehensible to the organic mind. From this glittering swirl, an image emerged, and the sense of awe that had filled McCoy's spirit was completely replaced by a foreboding sense of awe. Somehow, this mere automation of steam levers and electro gears had done the impossible. It had displayed a realistic image of a human face. Not the words, a human face. Not an artist's rendition of a face. It was an actual human face. One he knew as well as his own. James Tiberius Kirk. But something was wrong. Here sat the man himself, close enough to touch, more alive than anyone had a right to be. The face that started back from the screen was a twisted mockery, a portal into nightmare. In this dark mirror, a great and mighty jaw hung slack and frozen. The twinkling eyes that simultaneously welcomed and penetrated were instead locked into an endless, vacant stare. One socket bore a garish red stain, but not the vital scarlet of blood or bruise as he had wiped from this face so many times. Nor was it the fading ruddiness of a fresh corpse equally familiar to him. No, it was a cold splash of wan, artificial red that had so lazily and asymmetrically desecrated that face. It was horrible, and it chilled McCoy to the very inside of him. He clenched everything inside of him that could be clenched, choking down a bestial scream that, should it escape from his bloodless lips, would almost certainly be really embarrassing. Thanks, Maggie. Part two is narrated by Mike O'Gorman, who you've seen on Ted Lasso, True Lies, and The Tonight Show. Make it so, Mike. Chapter eight, part two, novelized by Joe Fusion, narrated by Mike O'Gorman. The computer wall clicked and beeped, plodding along while Kirk practiced gritting his teeth. Besides being slow and loud, the device was also dumping heat into the room. Hmm, that could be a good excuse to take his shirt off. The fabric was crazy itchy, and he always felt more free in the buff. He remembered asking the machine a question, like several minutes ago. He'd even gussied up the request with some extra techno babble to impress the others while the computer's motor warmed up. But now what? Was it waiting on him? Um, summary, please. It had been waiting. The electronic gears inside the wall clanked in word. He imagined smashing the nerd who built this thing. Probably go down with a single neck chop. The TV part of the wall finally got less stupid and then switched over to a decent-looking girl face. Maybe this computer wasn't all bad. Then the face started talking, and he realized this was the summary thing he'd asked for. He stared at her mouth as the words happened, and he was struck by the feeling that he knew her. More than that, he was pretty sure they had done it. 
He looked over to Spock, hoping his alien superbrain would know this lady's name. And he did. Carol Marcus, he said, without Kirk even needing to ask. Nice. See? Not all nerds are useless. Yeah, Carol Marcus sounded right. As she went on talking about whatever he'd asked, other pictures started to bubble up through his brain. Interesting. It had been a bunch of stardates ago, and assuming these pictures were memories, they had done it. A lot. Like, really, a lot. He must have known this lady for a while to have done it so much. Unfortunately, that meant he needed to take a closer look at these memories. This could be one of those situations where his past self found a way to reach forward and screw up his present. Damn! He hated time travel. He zoned out for a bit, categorizing and ranking the memories. They included several very fine examples of doing it, which was rewarding. Some of these should have been in his regular daydream rotation. A few memories included snippets of conversation, and he put it together that she was a science lady. She'd been impressed by his punching and shooting and how people jumped when he yelled at them. She liked to see weird space stuff, so he had shown her the inside of quite a few spaceships. That was one of his favorite fast tracks to doing it. Commandeer a small ship, then set course for the nearest nebula, or whatever that would make the ship vibrate. Then it was, clear the bridge. If these memories were to be believed, he'd even taken her joyriding in the Enterprise a few times. <laughs> they must have been really good at doing it. He was distracted from this important research when the computer started showing something different. The lady's face left the screen, though somehow she kept talking. That stirred more memories of her talking, sometimes even when he wasn't even looking at her. She'd say some science thing, he'd say something cool, and then they'd get back to doing it. The view screen displayed a bunch of moving dots and lines, almost like they were flying through a giant space molecule or an alien made of math. He didn't recognize it as a monster that he'd fought or done it with, but that was hardly definitive. The screen then started talking about the Genesis device, which he was pretty sure he'd heard somewhere else recently. It was all very boring. But then he saw the device and the computer's drawing of how it could simultaneously blow up and do it with an entire planet. And just like that, pieces fell into place. This science lady might as well have named her rocket Kirk for all the subtlety of it. She'd heard the stories of the many things he'd done it with and knew her competition was way more than rainbow ladies and foxy lizards. There was the time he'd done it with a liquid robot from the future. There had been that transparent spaceship that was also the ghost of a clam. Hell, he was pretty confident he'd done it with another universe once. The ship had bumped into a strange hole out near the edge of space. He ordered Scotty to design him a custom spacesuit for the encounter with lots of cameras and science probes. That memory made him chuckle inside of himself, like, you know, with his mouth closed. So, obviously, Carol Lady was trying to get his attention. She'd built a bomb full of cosmic seeds, and surprise, surprise, she was yanking old Kirk toward it. Most likely, she'd need their help to carry it, or he'd have to save her from bandits or whatever. This could actually turn out to be a pretty cool adventure. It would definitely involve doing it. That much was clear. Maybe even some entirely new types of doing it. Maybe they'd be the first ones to do it on this new planet. Oh, how he liked the sound of that. On the screen, the simulation of a lifeless moon was changing before their eyes. 
Seamlessly, almost magically, the computerized graphics were replaced by a real, actual world. Their perspective raced over a verdant landscape more lush and bountiful than any he'd ever imagined. A wave of vertigo struck him, and he thought, this must be what it's like to fly. It felt like if he leaned too far forward, he would tumble through the TV right into another world. It was so mesmerizing, he almost stopped thinking about doing it. He looked up to Spock to get the nerd's reaction to all this. Fascinating, he offered, and his angular face parts creased slightly like an expression. Sweet. When Spock got this excited about something, he'd do all the boring homework, and Kirk could focus on the fun stuff. And speaking of fun, he could feel McBones jittering around behind him, gathering up steam for a disagreement with Spock. In the old days, it had been a favorite pastime to dream up new ways to make these two argue. Besides being reliably hilarious, it also made this cakewalk of a job even easier. Their advice to him almost always came from opposing extremes, which meant Kirk could do whatever he wanted and play it off as a compromise. On those rare occasions when they'd agree, it was all the more vital that he ignore them and crank up the Kirk. Put the ship in reverse. Punch the ambassador. Transport directly into the warp core. It was that kind of inspired jackassery that had made him the most famous captain he knew and had won him all these colorful buttons on his shirt. He turned around to watch the show. Thank you, Mr. O'Gorman. Now, to conclude our three-parter, here's stand-up comedian and internet superstar, Teresa Lee. Teresa Lee, engage. This is Chapter 8, Part 3. The modern Spock civilization begins with the arrival of an entity known as Spock Zero, or the most logical one. It was this being who introduced the Spock people to the basic precepts of logicalness. The teachings of Spock Zero quickly became the foundation of all Spock society. The basic principles were taught to every child while still in the womb and were repeated every day by everyone on Spock world. Dedication to this path had brought peace to the Spocks and had also provided them with the air of detached superiority that was so prized throughout the Federation. Even as Spock himself stood in the room with the humans Kirk and McCoy, staring at a computer wall, most of his magnificent brain was happily occupied with repeating the rules of logicality. Only a single tiny brain wrinkle was dedicated to partaking in conversation, and that wrinkle was bored. To Spock, a conversation was simply saying the next most logical thing. Two Spocks conversed by taking turns, each contributing proportionally to their most recent logical rankings. When a Spock and a human had a conversation, the human invariably talked way too much, and the Spock occasionally interjected logically. It was called the winner. When one of the humans looked at him or said his name, his little conversation nub would logically tell his mouth what to say logically. Frequently, it proved most logical for him to speak the name of whatever it was they were gaping at. Other times, the unfortunate brain part would need to decide whether or not the current topic was fascinating. On this particular day, he had been reciting the rules of Spock for several minutes when the brain wrinkle on duty called for his attention. He noticed that McCoy was sweaty and gross, which were clear signs of illogic. Kirk was grinning, so Spock assumed that he had just won an argument. The logical next step would be to win even more, really grinding the logic into McCoy's dumb face, in the hopes that he might learn to be more logical. This hope had proven vain over the years, but it was still fun, 
And it was logical to have more fun than less fun. The intercom buzzed and it was Savik, the she-spock. The interruption obviously irked Kirk, but he perked up from his lurk with a jerk at the prospect of work, corking his ear and shirking the smirk. It seemed that they had encountered a ship out here in space and logically it would be a spaceship. Kirk immediately began warming up his punching and yelling muscles and McCoy shriveled in relief. When Savik said that the other ship was the Reliant, Kirk nearly burst with joy at recognizing a name. As the Admiral shoved past them to get to the bridge, Spock slid his foot into the logical place that would cause McCoy to fall over. Logically, that happened. Spock arrived on the bridge as Kirk was shouting at everyone to do what they were already doing. To be completely fair, and also logical, many of them did perform their jobs more quickly when yelled at. Also, it was fun to watch them yell, and again, logical to have more fun. The communication specialist with decades of experience was saying something. But Spock ignored her, because he was busy being logical, and Kirk because he was being loud. His latest shout was, Try the emergency channels! This was aimed at the highly trained Starship crew who were clearly doing that already. Picture, Mr. Savik, picture! Kirk was pointing impatiently at the big view screen, desperate to see what everyone else had been looking at, but bigger. A dot appeared on the black screen. Uhura sat at the communication console, waiting for someone to tell her what to do next. She had already prepared and executed 13 different communication protocols and had the computer scanning a pattern of modulation variants that corrected for most common equipment malfunctions and interference sources. Really, the computer itself did 90% of the work, allowing her to focus on anomalies and exceptions that called for truly creative solutions. Spock said something at her. Attempt visual communication. She sighed deeply and pressed that button again. Then Kirk came up with the brilliant hypothesis that communications might not be working because the Reliance communication system might not be working. And then Spock affirmed this in the most non-committal way possible. Wow. Somehow, these two had been promoted to the top of Starfleet by alternately shouting obvious things and finding fancy ways to say, duh. There were worse leaders to bet your career on, she assumed. Aboard the Reliant, the one known as Khan giggled himself, fidgeting about in the captain's throne with a godlike restlessness. Around him, his family of genetically advanced superhumans were preparing for space battle, shaving their bodies, putting sticks into their hair, and smashing guns apart to make spearheads. His most trusted followers were at the starship's consoles, replacing buttons with bits of bone and hammering the screens into more pleasing shapes. He had tasked one of the young prodigies with pushing food scraps and waste into the air vents, and she was cleverly mashing goo through a grate with her bare feet. Slow to one-half impulse power. Let's be friends. By con, that sounded strong. Firm and authoritative, right? One of his glorious children, resplendent in upcycled clothing, grunted confirmation from the helm. His most beautiful child, glorious Joachim, was working the comms. Joachim's life vest was second in glory only to his own, and the lad's bare chest was as greasy and hard as the cement in an old garage. His flaxen hair had been braided and knotted like the ropes on an abandoned dock, and his eyes sparkled with authority and potential. 
Joaquin was his chosen successor, and it was clear to everyone why. This future king of men turned to face his father, then muttered boldly, They're requesting visual communication, sir. Ah, what a glorious specimen. The apple certainly didn't fall far from the tree, did it? And this tree drops several apples a day. <laughs> More than enough to keep Dr. Kirk away. Let them eat static, Khan quipped effortlessly. He was so good at this, he'd forgotten how naturally proficient he was at captaining a ship. To be fair, he was essentially a professional everything, thanks to all the extra genes those scientists had pumped into him. He particularly excelled at saying clever things, maybe even more so than lifting stuff. In this most delicious of moments, he felt the need to say something salty yet spicy. He wanted to savor it, slow and steady like a turtle soup. But he also needed to strike the iron while he was still hot. Or three strikes and they'd be out. Had to use their hot potato or end up in hot water. Stay cool as a cucumber, but no cold feet when it's time to be cold-hearted. There! That was it! He had it. The perfect quip. All he needed to do was get the attribution right, and this utterance would reverberate through the ages, echoing his excellence. Ah, Kirk, my old friend, do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? Everyone in the room froze, perfectly on theme, he noted, waiting for Khan to deliver the coup de grace. It is very cold. It's space. Yes, he had nailed it. Oh, that was so con, so him. Yes. Now they waited for it to get back to Kirk. By grapevine, presumably. He wondered if any of his guys were friends with Kirk's crew. Probably should have checked earlier. Chapter 9. Yellow alert, in which foes are reunited and our heroes are presented with the most terrible choice. Novelized by Stephen Levinson, narrated by Ira Glass. Hello, anyone home? Shatner called out over the comm. Earth to Reliant, come in Reliant. Once again, the Admiral's hails were met with silence. It was as if the Reliant's captain was ghosting him. But not a ghost that rattles chains or howls in the night, or shouts boo, or makes his presence known in any imaginable way, but rather a ghost that's completely invisible and noiseless. In fact, less like a ghost, and more like a regular-ass dead person, whose consciousness, whose mental activity, whose years or decades of lived experiences, whose loves and losses and pains and victories flicker in less than a moment into utter nothingness, total oblivion, and are no more. Like yours will, dear listener, inevitably. Shatner turned to Ahura. Are you certain we're transmitting? Hmm, let me see. Ahura answered thoughtfully. For the past uh, 30 years of my career, my sole responsibility has been sitting in this chair and pushing the button marked transmit. But, hmm, great idea. I'll check to see if I forgot to push it this one time. Then without ever breaking eye contact with Shatner, she continued. Yep, we're transmitting. Asshole, she added. With its screaming klaxons and flashing lights, 
Yellow alerts did little to focus the crew during an emergency. Quite the contrary. But they were very effective at changing the subject after your comms officer subjected you to a sick burn in front of all your buddies. Yellow alert, ordered Shatner. The lights dimmed unhelpfully as the bridge was bathed in an ominous red glow and alarms blared. Incoming message from the Reliant, O'Hara shouted over the den. They say their chamber coil is shorting their comm system. Well, that would explain everything. Cancel yellow alert, demanded Shatner. It would not, Spock replied coolly as the lights returned to normal. Chamber coils are not a thing that spaceships have. It pains me to agree with this inhuman, green-blooded freak, but goddammit, Bill, even I know chamber coils aren't a thing, agreed the lovable McCoy. Yellow alert, ordered the Admiral. He guessed a glance at his bridge officers. Every day they didn't mutiny was frankly a shock to him. To a man, they were more qualified to lead, even McCoy. And yet, day after day, they dutifully showed up to obey Kirk's orders. Their passivity disgusted him. Why didn't they transfer to another starship? Or even a desk job, for God's sake? What were they waiting for? The moment their captain would finally fuck up and they'd have their crack at the big swivel chair? Because he did fuck up. Constantly. Twice a day, minimum. He'd violate the prime directive by screwing some alien ambassador on the cusp of some breakthrough treaty signing, order the ship's computer to self-destruct for the flimsiest of pretenses. He'd personally lead deadly away missions anytime he felt like some fresh air, strip off his shirt and fight virtually anything or anyone. If Starfleet had an HR department, he'd have never made it past Ensign. Maybe that's what Reliant was up to. Maybe Chekhov, the one that finally extricated himself from Shatner's insufferable rule, had returned to liberate his comrades. Back on the Reliance Bridge, Khan sat back, luxuriating in the rich Corinthian leather of his captain's chair, while basking in the muddled sounds of chaos emanating from the Enterprise's still-open comm channel. Their shields are still down, said Joaquim, who was spending the summer as Khan's intern for college credit. Joaquim, I would like you to annihilate their engine room using our space cannons, Khan directed. Aye, Captain. Joaquin raised his open palm to slam the launch activator. Ah, ah, ah! Patience! Khan thrust a finger in the air, momentarily halting the launch. I've been waiting for this day for a long, long time. I'm determined to enjoy every last moment, caressing it, savoring it, like a fine French orgasm. Khan always talked like that. Always. So, uh, should I fire in the Enterprise, or... Yes, Joaquim. Khan shook his head, with other contempt, as if the very question made him weary. How do I put this in a way that you'll understand? My eager young pupil, you're trying too hard. Wait, you're the one who spent every waking moment of the last decade plotting to destroy Kirk. Perhaps. But observe my posture. Listen to my voice. I may want James T. Kirk dead, but I'm not being weird about it. In our line of work, the term is sweaty. Can you destroy that ship in a way that's not sweaty? Now I'm feeling really self-conscious about it. How do you push a button in a not weird way? Rather than respond, constantly reached down and pressed the rocket launcher himself, nonchalantly, as if he was merely waving off the offer of a fine cognac. And fuck, that son of a bitch didn't look super suave doing it. The rest of the bridge crew broke into spontaneous applause while Khan took the slightest hint of a bow, then directed his attention to the view screen, 
to enjoy the destruction. A hail of explosive missiles slammed into the unprotected underbelly of the Enterprise's engine room. Bits of metal, valuable electronic components, two totally innocent kittens were sucked into the deadly vacuum of space. A noxious green gas burst out from exposed ductwork, flooding the chamber. It was a total shit show. Just like the Kobayashi Maru, except this time it was absolutely real. And Shatner couldn't cheat his way out, as per usual. The Admiral was jolted into his chair. What the? he screamed. Why would another Starfleet ship be firing on us? Must be the damn chamber coil acting up again. Still not a thing, said Spock. More likely, the Reliant has been seized by a hostile force. Your orders, Admiral? Evasive action, Mr. Sulu, Shatner commanded. Any uh, particular evasive action you'd like me to take? asked Sulu. Or should I just wing it as usual? You have your orders. Five decks below, disoriented engineers ran across the room, bouncing off the walls, the ceiling, and each other, in a mad attempt to save themselves from a cold, quick death. Keeping outer space on the outside was the primary task of any starship, but on this count, the Enterprise was failing miserably, and nobody knew this better than her chief engineer. Scotty scampered hither and yon, frantically calling out life-saving orders in his unintelligible Scottish brogue. An engine mask is automatically lowered from the bulkhead. To start the flow of oxygen, pull the mask behind you, laddies. Place it firmly over your nose and mouth. Secure the elastic band behind your head and breathe normally. Shields up. In fact, does anybody know why we don't just always keep the shields up all the time? Asked Shatner, inadvertently doing a 23rd century version of the old, why don't they make the whole airplane out of the black box routine? They somehow knew exactly where to hit us, spake Spock, speculatively from the bridge. The odds of that happening by chance are less than one in a hundred. You cold-blooded alien monster, shouted McCoy. These are human lives we're talking about. Lives of your fellow crew members, tragically cut short. And yet it's nothing more than a game to you, isn't it? You horrific, unfeeling zombie. McCoy paused before glancing up at his fellow bridge officers. Too much? Sulu held his thumb and forefinger aloft, a mere inch apart, while wincing, the universal sign for a little bit. As I was saying, Spock continued, phasers are depleted, shields are fried, life support is trashed, and the warp core is a warp no more. In retrospect, it was probably a mistake to store all of our essential systems right next to the engine. No sooner had Spock uttered these words than the whole ship's bridge was struck by yet another round of missile fire. Sparks flew, the control panel burst into flame, and a fog machine rented for the Enterprise's upcoming Dance Among the Stars prom ruptured, filling the room with thick, romantic smoke. It was quickly becoming clear to Kirk that this was the least successful mission the Enterprise had ever encountered. Worse than the time that they stumbled upon an alternate dimension where everyone was exactly like them except giant assholes. Worse than the adventure where the ship was filled with tons of adorable furry creatures and the crew had to love them all. Even worse than the episode where Spock got dangerously horny and the entire team had to gang up to get him laid. Admiral? Message coming through from the Reliant, O'Hara said. Shatner lifted a water bottle from his console unscrewed the lid, and emptied its refreshing contents into his waiting mouth, swishing the cold liquid back and forth inside his closely shaven cheeks. O'Hara continued. They're asking us to surrender. At first, the water shot out of Shatner's mouth like an Icelandic geyser. Slowly, over the course of several seconds, the torrent evolved into a fine mist, before finally petering out into a delicate waterfall. It covered everything in its path, 
shorting out several of the electronic consoles that had somehow avoided being damaged in the previous laser volley, and completely soaking the hapless Sulu. Womp womp. S-s-s-surrender, gurgled Shatner, as a bit more water dribbled out into his shoe. We have visual contact with the Reliant. Shall I put it through? Please don't, begged Sulu, telling off his face with the rag he kept handy for just such occasions. On screen, barked the Admiral. As the picture resolved on the monitor, Shatner rubbed his eyes in disbelief. The man staring back at him, occupying the captain's chair of the Reliant, was wearing some sort of strange half-cardigan, half-scarf, mouse brown in color, rope-like in design, which simultaneously violated every law of fashion, taste, and physics in its ability to remain affixed to his torso, while somehow also revealing every square millimeter of his chest hair. It was obvious that his superhuman, genetically enhanced man nipples had remained supple and unblemished despite years of exposure to the harsh sunlight of Seda Alpha 5. Khan's head was covered with the blonde-gray bouffant mullet hybrid that he made popular throughout Sector 25712 of the Alpha Quadrant. Copper bangles, leather necklaces, and iron chains adored the man's wrists, torso, neck, and, Kirk could only assume, genitalia. Dad? What? asked Khan, momentarily ruffled. No, it's me, Khan, your arch-nemesis. You left me defeated and condemned to rot in a penal colony. You don't recognize me? It's probably my new look. Do you like it? No, Shatner lied. Why have you fired on my vessel? Hmm, let's see. Maybe because you left me defeated and condemned to rot in a penal colony? Ron, if it's me that you want, why destroy my entire ship? Let these innocent people go. Just kill me. Mansulu. I offer you a counterproposal, responded Khan. I let them go if you give me the secret of Genesis. Well, most modern biblical scholars agree that there were three distinct authors. Please do not insult my intelligence, Khan spat. That's my tailor's job. Let's start again, shall we? I want all the information you have about the Genesis Project. My finger is now seductively encircling the button to my ship's laser gun, and I would like nothing more than to fire. What is your answer? Chandler cleared his throat. He and Khan were engaged in a high-stakes game of three-dimensional chess. Not like the common expression three-dimensional chess people on Twitter throw around when speculating about Trump. In Star Trek, 3D chess is an actual game. Because in the future, I guess, regular chess is too vanilla. Google it. I accept your offer. But the Genesis file is on a pen drive in the pocket of my other pants. I need more time to find it. At least a minute. Khan grinned and hit the record button on his view screen so he could capture this moment for the annals of history. Plus, he was going to post it on his TikTok account using that photo that would make it look like Kirk was sobbing. I give you 60 seconds, Admiral. Chapter 10, Stalling for Time. Novelized and narrated by Joe Firestone. At this point, the USS Enterprise looked pretty red and smoky. A bad sign. Admiral Kirk was in a no-win situation at this point, and so being the leader that he was, he turned around to face his crew, telling them to clear the bridge. It was tense. Everyone seemed to know what that meant and went about their business of clearing the bridge. Kirk approached Spock, his good friend and associate. Spock tried to comfort him. 
At least we know he doesn't have Genesis. Kirk looked worried. Just keep nodding as though I'm giving orders. Kirk was bidding for time. Biting? Bidding. Nah. Kirk was biding for time. He spoke to Kirstie Alley. Punch up the data charts of the USS Reliance command console and hurry. Allie knew just what to do. Aye, aye, sir, she said stoically. Khan reminded them. 45 seconds. He was sure being a stinker. The crew was nervous and unsure of what would happen next. However, Kirk usually did a bang-up job of leading the way, so they all hoped deep down that he had a plan. Kirk started talking to the FaceTime machine once again. Khan stood there with his hot roadie. They had been discussing official space attack business when Kirk got their attention again. Kirk pleaded with Khan, Sir, you've got to give us time. The computer's inoperative. Kirk was lying about that, but what else can an admiral do in such a crazy situation? Khan snapped back, Time is a luxury you do not have, admiral. This was a line Khan had prepared the night before, and it came out just right. Kirk turned around and said, Dang, isn't that something just about all of us would say when put in that situation? He put on the readers he got for his birthday from his doctor friend and turned around to think. Allie looked at him expectantly. Khan put the pressure on with a passive-aggressive, Admiral. Kirk had to placate him with a lie. It's coming through now, Khan. All the while, the two spaceships were getting closer and closer together. Uh Uh-oh. Spock sidled up to Kirk. Reliance's prefix numbers are 1609. Allie just sat there watching. Kirk said to her, You've got to learn why things work on a starship. She was good for a young space officer, but had a lot to learn. They were trying to break into the enemy ship's computer system. Smart! On FaceTime, we could still see Khan and the cute space lifeguard deliberating. It became clear to those around him that Kirk was not going to take this situation with his pants down and a paddle to his ass. He was taking control. Using hacker logic, he had Kirstie Alley break into the Reliance console and lower their shields, which was an absolutely wicked move. Spock reminded him the prefix combination could have changed. Khan is quite intelligent, which was Spock's way of saying, not so fast, mister, this plan could be a whopper. Spock was always reminding Kirk to slow down and smell the roses, but Kirk never seemed to let that register. Khan reminded them over FaceTime, 15 seconds! It was getting down to the wire. Kirk turned around to the FaceTime and asked, Khan, how do we know you'll keep your word? Khan replied with another banger he had thought of the night before, just in case Kirk asked him this. I've given you no word to keep, Admiral. In my judgment, you simply have no alternative. Crushed it, Khan thought to himself. Kirk pretended to concede. I see your point. Stand by to receive our transmission. Over the computer, Khan looked like he was about to dig into a Christmas ham. Kirk turned back around and whispered to his crew, Are the phasers on target? Sulu Whisper replied, phasers are locked. They were all under immense pressure, but on the Starship Enterprise, some days were like this. Khan giddily reminded them that the 60 seconds were up, and it was time to meet Khan's demands. Kirk coolly replied, here it comes, now, Mr. Spock. Here Khan thought Kirk was telling Spock to hand over the Genesis Project data, but Kirk was definitely talking about the phasers. Spock typed in the prefix combination to Reliance's computers, and it worked! The Reliance's shields were going down, and the space tables were turning! 
Over on the USS Reliance, the hunky lifeguard was shocked, witnessing this in real time. He yelled to his crew, Our shields are dropping! And Khan's jaw was dropping too. Khan insisted, Raise them! But the space hunk was at a loss. I can't! Spock's computer work made it so they couldn't control their own space console anymore. Khan was starting to go into beast mode. Where's the override? The override! Just then, we heard the word from Admiral Kirk we'd been waiting to hear this whole time. Fire. The Reliance had its shields down and was now under attack. Fire, Kirk commanded again. The USS Reliance was experiencing some pretty heavy damage and minor explosions. Khan commanded his crew to fire back, but the lifeguard reminded him they couldn't fire since the console was out of their control. The lifeguard braced Khan. We must repair the damage. The Enterprise will wait. She's not going anywhere. And with that, the Reliance sailed away. The space hunk made a good call and deserved a raise. The battle was over, for now. Back on Kirk's ship, things were still looking red, but a little less smoky. Sulu spoke first. Sir, you did it. Kirk wiped the sweat off his upper lip. I did nothing except get caught with my britches down. I must be going senile. Kirk's recent birthday had stirred up quite a bit of existential dread. Mrs. Alley, you just keep right on quoting regulations. Kirstie Alley looked somewhat ashamed, but Kirk paid her no mind. Meantime, let's find out what the hell is going on and see how bad we've been hit. Just then, the space door swooshed open. Scotty came in holding the bloody body of Midshipman Preston. Everyone was aghast. Not Midshipman Preston. Spock closed his eyes in despair. The space battle had cost them a heavy toll. A crew member's life. Ain't nothing regular about any of this. This is chapter 11. Novelized by Dennis DeClaudio. Narrated by Dick Cavett. William Shatner hated going to the Enterprise's sick bay. Hated it. And not because it meant he had to look at sick people, it was because of what his presence entailed. To catch an up-close glimpse of a Starfleet captain, an admiral no less, was an extremely exciting experience. And a lot of these boys didn't have all that much excitement left in them. They lay burned, blasted, and befuddled, teetering on the brink of death, writhing in agony on their medical slabs, draped stupefied atop whatever surface could bear them. The star nurses had one kid covered in some sort of tinfoil blanket. Microwave poisoning, no doubt. Inside the operating theater, Shatner found Dr. Bones irradiating young Preston's blastoid wounds with a bioflash wand. At the Admiral's approach, Preston inched up from his deathbed to cough out a meager question of his commander. Is the word given? Shatner looked back with magnanimous poise. He would humor the dying boy. The word is given, he whispered. Warp speed. Aye. The boy wheezed before warping off on his own adventures through the nether cosmos. Dr. Bones somberly pulled a tinfoil blanket over the boy's face. And Shatner made a mental note to ask why not just regular cloth ones. Uh, But later. Space Station Regular One, 
This is Starship Enterprise. Please come in. Uhura turned away from the comms panel. No response, sir. Shatner snapped his fingers, prowling the bridge like a sleek, contemplative cat. Sensors, Captain? Scanners and sensors still inoperative, Spock returned, his voice thick with emotionlessness. There's no way to tell what's inside the station. And no way of knowing if Reliant is still in the area, Shatner thought out loud in Spock's direction. What do you make of the planetoid beyond? Regular is Class D. It consists of various remarkable ores, essentially a great rock in space. Ah, a great rock indeed. And what are rocks truly great for? Reliant could be hiding behind that rock. A distinct possibility, Spock confirmed. Mr. Scott, do you have enough power for transporters? Shatner barked into the intercom. I'm going down to the station. He turned his attention to Dr. Bones. Can you spare someone? There may be people hurt. Yeah, Dr. Bones replied. I can spare me. He didn't know a karate chop from a Romulan knuckle jab, but Shatner knew better than to try to talk his longtime compatriot out of coming. Begging the Admiral's pardon, Mr. Savick objected in her bloodless Vulcan inflection. General Order 15, colon, no flag officer shall beam into a hazardous area without armed escort. Shatner quickly ran through the general orders in his head. 12, 13, 14, 16. There's no such regulation, he said. The look on Mr. Savick's face said it all. Learning to lie like a decent human. Good for her. Shatner hadn't beamed in a while. You uh, don't get to beam all that much behind a Starfleet desk. He strode along with Dr. Bones and Mr. Savick onto the transporting platform with uh, Galdantirian butterflies in his stomach. You never know what you're going to find on the other side of a beam. Once in place, the Admiral nodded toward the technician who immediately began to fiddle with the knobs. Shatner felt uneasy, though like he was forgetting something. But what? Uh, then came the familiar tingle of his particles accelerating to beam velocity, the unearthly glow of the molecular imaging scanner cataloging his every atom. He'd be vanishing any second. What was he forgetting? His collar. Anyone or anything could be waiting on the end of this beam, he reached back over his shoulders, snapped his collar up into its more fashionable position, just in time to disappear. They reappeared inside regular one. There was nobody waiting for them. Shatner kept the collar up just in case. Mr. Savick looked down to her tricorder. Indeterminate life signs, she reported. The tricorder beeped suspiciously. Phasers on stun, Shatner ordered. The space station was eerie, like a ghost space station. But Shatner had a feeling that the ghosts here just might be alive. He looked down a corridor and found nothing. He continued his search while Mr. Savick's tricorder went on beeping in the background. He still did not understand why I had to make that noise. 
and he was not going to ask Spock again. Elsewhere on the regular, Mr. Savick strolled with eyes wide open while Dr. Bones jittered toward a door. A noise! Dr. Bones nearly soiled his regulation shorts, but it turned out to just be a space rat. He stepped back backwards away from the road, being careful to keep it in his sight in case it decided to attack. He felt something on his back. Another space rat? Dr. Bones spun around and came face to face with death. Not death, exactly, but a dead man, bloodied and dangling from the ceiling like a, a side of Abronian beef. Shatner, he cried, dot, dot, dot. They were all dead, which meant the collar could come down. The bodies, all five of them, had been hung by their legs from a high thermonic pipe and left to dangle. Wasn't it just like Khan to temper his savage brutality with a bit of flair? <laughs> well, rigor hasn't set in, and now more composed and less hysterical Dr. Bones reported, as Shatner lowered another corpse. This couldn't have happened too long ago, Shatner. But Shatner wasn't thinking about time. He was thinking about a lady from his past, one that he had seen naked. Carol, he whispered to himself. Mr. Savick's tricorder started beeping madly at a thermowave locker. She'd found something. Shatner delivered a killer two-inch punch to the glass case protecting the locker's open button. The side door slid open, revealing his old navigator, Pavel Chekhov, folded over and jammed in, but still alive. Beside him sat Clark Terrell, captain of the USS Reliant. Oh, sir, Chekhov said, his voice dripping with remorse. It was Khan. We found him on Sadie Alpha 5. He put creatures in our bodies to control our minds, made us say lies, do things. But we beat him, the Russian said with pride. He thought he controlled us, but he was wrong. We beat him. Captain Terrell was strong. Shatner turned to Terrell, who was staring off into the middle distance. The middle of what? He had no idea. Captain, where's Dr. Marcus? Where are the Genesis materials? He couldn't find them, Terrell responded flatly. Even the data banks were empty. Erased? Shatner asked. But Terrell was not interested in that just now. He, uh, he tortured those people. None of them would tell him anything. He went wild. He, he slit their throats. He wanted to tear the place apart. But he was late. He had to get back to the Reliant in time to blow you to bits. The ship's crew had been left marooned on Sadie Alpha 5, Terrell revealed. He's completely mad, Admiral. He blames you for the death of his wife. I know what he blames me for, Shatner shot back. The escape pods were all in place, which probably meant they didn't get away in escape pods. Where's the transporter room? The unit's been left on, Shatner said, staring elk-like at the transporter room control panel, which means nobody remained to turn it off. Those people back there bought escape time for Genesis with their lives, Dr. Bones said. 
though Shatner would have had the same thought had he been given a few more seconds. This is not logical, Mr. Savick declared. These coordinates are deep inside Regula, a planetoid we know to be lifeless. Shatner sat down in the technician's chair to have a good think. He flipped open his communicator. Shatner to Enterprise. Spock here, Spock replied. Captain Spock, damage report, Shatner demanded. The situation is grave, Admiral. We won't have main power for six days. Auxiliary power has temporarily failed, and restoration may be possible in two days by the book, Admiral. Nearby on the Reliant, other ears were listening in on the transmission, ears that belonged to a certain Khan Nunyan Singh. Meaning you can't even beam us back, Shatner asked of Spock, though he knew the answer. Not at present, Spock said. And on the Reliant, eyes turned down in thought. Eyes that also belonged to a certain Khan Nunyan Singh. Captain Spock, Shatner spoke across the transom, if you don't hear from us within one hour, your orders are to restore what power you can, take the Enterprise to the nearest starbase, and alert Starfleet Command as soon as you're out of jamming range. Uhura broke in. Sir, we won't leave you behind. Uhura, if you don't hear from us, there won't be anybody behind, <laughs> because they'd be dead. Shatner took for granted they didn't need to say that part. Captain Terrell spoke up. It's all the same, Admiral. We'd like to share the risk. Right, let's go. Go? Dr. Bones asked. Where are we going? Where they went, Shatner answered. Suppose they went nowhere, Dr. Bones offered cowardfully. Shatner thought for a second before responding, then this will be your big chance to get away from it all. Shatner was pleased with that witticism, so pleased, in fact, that he completely neglected to pop his collar before the five of them beamed down. Chapter 12, Kirk with Eels, novelized by River Clegg, read by Fred Stoller, that's me. Kirk's life flashed before his eyes, not because he was about to die, but because he liked thinking about all the stuff that happened to him since he was born. His first kiss, his first beer, his first time listening to pet sounds all the way through, and then wondering if there was something he was missing, or maybe you need a really fancy sound system for it to make sense. Beg pardon, sir? One of the spaceship guys asked Kirk, What? Did I say something? Kirk replied, annoyed that he had forgotten the spaceship guy's name. Frank? You were saying something about how Wouldn't It Be Nice is a great song, but the rest of the album is just kind of meh. But you were muttering it under your breath pretty angrily, as though it's a topic that's eating away at you from within. Well, it's not. Listen up. We've just beamed down to this moon with our space team to do Star Trek stuff, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Aye, sir. The moon's surface was dusty and craterous, like the skin of a mummy who'd been mummified by someone who was just learning how to do it. 
And the interior of the moon base, which is where they had all beamed to, looked like a futuristic Aspen ski lodge. Plus, everyone's outfits had these wide, woolly-looking collars. They looked like fancy winter coats you'd wear while on a sci-fi skiing trip. Hey, where's the chairlift, one of them said, and everyone burst out laughing. It was the perfect joke because they all immediately understood that, yes, the whole aesthetic did resemble some sort of ski lodge, and it wasn't just one observer's weird interpretation that no one else would have understood or agreed with. Ha 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 Everyone was still laughing. It wasn't that funny, Kirk yelled. They all knew that Kirk tended to think of himself as the funny one, and he always got insecure whenever anyone else cracked a joke. They felt bad for Kirk. Hey, look at that silver thing, Kirk said. And sure enough, there was a big silver thing. Kirk and Frank. Frank? Ronald? Ugh, this was going to drive Kirk crazy. Walked over to it and Ronald said, Genesis, I presume. Which was very exciting because Genesis was an important Star Trek thing that could use technology to make dead planets habitable or, or, or whatever. It was called Genesis as a tribute to the Bible and its author, Steve Genesis. Oh no, a guy is coming to attack you, someone on the team yelled to Kirk. All right, long story short, the guy attacking Kirk was David, Kirk's son, whom he'd had with a woman named Dr. Carol Marcus, who also showed up in the room right then. Somehow they all figured out who was who and shared a laugh. Sorry for trying to attack you with a space knife, Dad, David said, visibly embarrassed. It's all right, son. I'm sorry. I never supported you or your Beach Boys cover band. It was... Kirk smiled, but he was also gritting his teeth like what he was about to say pained him. It was good. Thanks, Dad. David hugged Kirk. I'm glad I had sex with you, Kirk, and that I gave birth to you nine months after, David, Carol said. But trouble was brewing. Two guys whose brains were being controlled by, get this, Eel Laver suddenly appeared. It was Chekhov and Terrell who were supposed to be on Kirk's side, only they weren't on account of the eel larva. They were pointing their laser guns at Kirk. Seriously? My kid just tried to kill me, and now you? Yes, Terrell said. Then he spoke into his radio. That's what you want, right, boss? That better not be Khan you're talking to, Kirk yelled. It probably is, said the guy whose name Kirk was pretty sure was Ronald or Tony... Yes, yes, definitely Tony. And it was Khan. His skin was green and sickly, and he had some sort of space IV drip on his wrist that kind of resembled the handcuff. He looked like the last surviving Motley Crew roadie. Yes, Terrell, I want to kill Kirk, Khan said into the radio. But first kill someone who's not terribly important so you can show off how your space gun vaporizes people's entire bodies without leaving a corpse. Good idea. Then Terrell did that. Awesome, Khan said. Now, do that same thing to Kirk. But I don't want to. Kirk is my friend. Listen to the eel controlling your brain, Khan barked. Eels are the most notable and godly of creatures. They need no appendages to propel themselves forth. They glide, magnificent, bestowing upon an un 
deserving world a glimpse of physical perfection as they dart about in their glistening forms of purest light. Do as the eel says. Again with the eels, Terrell said. I'd rather die than hear more of this. So he shot himself. All right, Chekhov, can you please murder Kurikon, said exasperated. But Chekhov also wouldn't do it. Instead, he collapsed to the ground, either because he couldn't bring himself to kill his ally, or because he suffered an aneurysm at that exact moment, which would have been a pretty well coincidence, but still, it's not impossible. Okay, the eel crawled out of Chekhov's ear. Watch out for that eel, Kirk shouted and shot the eel. It was gross. Then Kirk picked up the radio. Hey, Khan, is this Kirk? You know damn well that it's Kirk. The two guys whose brains had eels in them are dead, and they didn't kill me. I know, Khan sighed. Talk about a disappointment. I can relate. The other day I bought some bananas, but they all went bad before I ate them. This is nothing like that. Well, they're both disappointments. Let's cut to the chase, Khan said. You may be alive, but that's actually better for me because I'm going to strand you on this moon base much the way you stranded me all those years ago. Also, I'm going to beam that Genesis thing up to my ship because I I think it will be fun to use. But back to you. I'm going to maroon you on this base because in theory, you'll be so unhappy here that you'll actually wish I had killed you. The boredom will be unbearable, especially because this version of the future doesn't have smartphones. You might also run out of food and resort to cannibalism. In any case, you'll never escape this place. You'll be buried alive. The ultimate punishment. This is my masterpiece. My growing achievement. My pet sounds. Not pet sounds again, Kirk said, rolling his eyes. What, you don't like pet sounds? Khan sounded aggrieved. I don't hate it, but people are always like, oh, pet sounds is so great. It's the best album to come out of the 60s, blah, blah, blah. Come on. It's just a bunch of high-pitched harmonies by guys who forgot that their job was to sing about surfboards. Fuck you, Dad, David yelled. You never believed in my Beach Boys cover band. Wait, wait, wait. You were in a Beach Boys cover band? Khan interjected with genuine excitement. At least someone knows good music, David said. Taste is subjective, replied Khan. But yes, I think Brian Wilson was a genius. More importantly, I think any good father should nurture his child's passions, even if he doesn't happen to share them. Thank you, Khan. Well, said Kirk defensively, it's not like I never nurtured. David, tell me, uh, Khan went on, does it get any better than the harpsichord on you still believe in me? Right, harpsichord, said Kirk caustically. Nothing says musical triumph like haunted Victorian carnival noise. Listen, I'm just going to say I hate pet sounds. Not because it's bad, but because people like you won't shut up about it, honestly. It almost makes me hate the Beach Boys, period. And they did some great stuff. Good Vibrations, Kokomo, those were killer. But then people like you come along and put them on this ridiculous pedestal because of pet sounds, when in reality it's it's a fine album that's still miles worse than fucking Magical Mystery Tour. Someone gasped. Everyone was staring at Kirk. I mean, Kirk stammered, sensing that he'd gone too far. 
It's got all you need is love on it. Anyway, I'm going to strand you on this moon base now, Khan said. Good talk. Okay, maybe it's not that much worse than magical mystery talk, but come on, you got to admit that it's still not in the same league as Sgt. Pepper. I know people have started to turn against that album a little bit, and maybe it's been slightly overrated. Obviously, it's no revolver, but with a little help from my friends, is a truly great showcase for Ringo. And look, everybody... I was just joking about Pat's sounds. After all, I'm the funny one in the group, right? Right? Just stop. The guy whose name Kirk thought was Frank, then Ronald, then Tony said. No, Con, I have good musical opinions. I used to have a Rolling Stones subscription. I know the name of Jimi Hendrix drummer, Mitch something. Con. Khan! Khan! Chapter 13. What Am I Feeling? Novelized and narrated by Steve Agee. If you have a problem with that, go fuck yourself. Savik, desperate, frantic, tries to make contact with the Enterprise. Enterprise, come in. This is Lieutenant Savik. Enterprise, can you read me? There is only radio silence. She smashes the comms unit against the wall, breaking it into a thousand pieces. Jesus, fuck! It's the year 2285, and our tech is like some horse shit out of the 20th century. Why don't you shut the fuck up? Odds are we're going to be here a while, and if you don't want to feel the sting of a sock full of nickels, then you need to chill out, barked McCoy. Mr. Chekhov starts to come too. Can you two keep it down? I kind of had some really intense ear trauma in case you've forgotten. Little did he know the bug that had wreaked havoc on his inner ear would leave him with a maddening level of tinnitus that would plague him the rest of his life. Every attempt at a meaningful relationship would end in heartbreak, for no woman could endure the constant droning of old Prairie Home Companion episodes that Chekhov had to play in order to muffle the non-stop ringing in his ears. That poor bastard would live out the rest of his life alone, staring out into space while dreaming of Lake Wobegon and the life he should have had. Admiral, still no word from the Enterprise, said Lieutenant Savick, finally calming down. Oh, really? You're not getting a reply on that walkie-talkie you smashed two minutes ago? That's a shocker. They usually work better when they're broken, said Bones sarcastically. The tension in the tunnel was so thick you could choke on it. Trying to change the subject, Carol finally speaks up. By the way, who is this con person, and what's his beef with you, Jim? Well, it's kind of a long story that was actually covered earlier, and it wouldn't be fair to the reader to hash through that shit again. Suffice it to say, he's a real piece of shit who could really benefit from some therapy in about 20 milligrams of Lexapro. By the way, I'm starving. Is there anything to eat down here? I'd kill for a space burger and a side of fries. Bones couldn't agree more. Fuck yes, dude. I'd kill for a space burger with extra cheese and a chocolate shake. When was the last time you had In-N-Out, Jim? Shatner perks up. Oh, that's easy. My birthday, six years ago? Remember that? You were there, Bones. Afterwards, we went to that strip club in Sacramento and that stripper with six tits stole your watch? 
Bones erupts into laughter. <laughs> My uncle Remy gave me that watch when I graduated from Starfleet. I still haven't told him it was stolen. Kara looks over at David and says, Why don't you show the others to the Genesis cave, David? Savik, who's been trying to piece together the comms unit this entire time, looks up. Genesis cave? Bones is confused. I thought this was the Genesis cave. Carol is insulted. Are you serious? You think this tunnel, with a couple of boxes scattered around, is the result of the Genesis project? Aren't you a doctor? You're really fucking stupid, Bones. I mean, I'd expect that from the Russian dude because he's at least had a brain injury, but wow. You have got to be... Okay, I get it. This isn't Genesis. Can we please move on, snapped Bones? David gets up and walks down the tunnel. Follow me. Savik and Bones follow, leaving Shatner and Carol alone. Well, not totally alone. Chekhov is there, but he's passed out again, so it doesn't really count. Kind of like when you have sex with someone in your dorm room while your roommate is sleeping. After a moment of awkward silence, Kirk has to speak. Look, I know David doesn't know he's my son, but if we're going to be stuck down here for the rest of our lives, I'm going to have to say something. I mean, at the very least, as a father, I need to tell that kid to get a haircut. That mullet is straight up goofy. He'd be laughed out of Starfleet Academy within a week of sporting that hillbilly cut. Well, he's not going to Starfleet, Jim. That's the whole idea. That's why he doesn't know you're his father. You have your world and I have mine. David's a lot safer with me than he would be running around the galaxy with you. Frustrated, Kirk hits her with some reality. Oh, really? He's safer with you than he is with me? Because last time I checked, the three of us are stuck in the exact same place. Hiding from a psycho who can't let go of the fact that I stranded him on a planet made of nothing but rock and sand, with no food, while earbugs killed off his crew. Carol pauses, then quietly laughs to herself. <laughs> He's a lot like you, actually. Kirk smiles. He has an aversion to throwing up, too? What? No, Carol gives up. It doesn't matter, Jim. Kirk stares off into the distance, deep in thought about what could have been if he had stuck around and been there for David. Is it too late? Has too much time passed? You know, real cats in the cradle, deep shit. Carol senses his longing. What are you feeling, Jim? Kirk hangs his head. There's a guy out there who wants me dead. And David would gladly help him out. My son. He turns to look at Carol. What am I feeling? Old. Worn out. Like a catcher's mitt that's been in the trunk of your car for two years, forgotten under a pile of crumpled up fast food wrappers. Carol knows just what would make Kirk feel better. You're just hangry, Jim. Let's get you some food and I'll show you something that'll make you feel as young as when the world was new. She takes him by the hand and leads him away. As soon as the coast is clear, Chekhov lets out a long, deep fart. He'd probably been holding it in this entire time and was just too bashful to let it out. Hi-ho, it's time.
time to kill my foe. I can show you my cave. Scientific advancements. Birds and water and plants. Check it, James. It's pretty sweet. Carol, what can this be? A cave just dripping with greenery, waterfalls, and such scenery. Did you dose me with LSD? No, I made a world with Project Genesis, you see. The greatest thing I've done, my top creation. Oh, yeah. Besides that sun you had with me. Oh, Admiral, one question. It's Kobayashi Maru. A challenge for real. It's Kobayashi Maru. So just how did you deal? Hey, look, don't worry. You're pretty logical head. Two to beam up. But I thought we don't talk on encoded. No, no, no. So those rules you exploded. Yeah, yeah. How bad could all that damage be? Well, Jim, I would avoid deck C. Just tell me, will the Enterprise survive? We're alive, but with the bare necessities. The power, that's auxiliary. Enough to take down Khan with massive strife? Damn right. Mr. Savick, could you power up the view screen? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Reliant is a sitting duck. Yes, sir, but I think we can't outgun them, nor can we outrun them. We are well and truly fucked. Every laser blast, they'll evade too fast. Every photon shot will be all for naught. Plus our shields have laps that are full of gaps. We have no moves left. Oh, really? Really? See the line where the gas forms a cloud that calls me. So I propose, and there we go. If the crew on the ship stands and fights right beside me, against that guy, we'll blast him back to SETI Alpha 5. But sir, the Mutara Nebula will discharge gas cloud static, shutting down our visuals and making shields erratic. 
But Khan and crew will face that too. Spock's right, no more prattle. Let's all gird our tight red suits and prep ourselves for battle. Condition red, condition red. Point our sensors straight ahead. Melt yourself into your seat, shall we? Or you will all be dead. All right, crew, the gloves are coming off. Let it blow, let it blow. That starship's got to go. Let it blow, let it blow. With this photon torpedo. Kim, we need to show him you mean business. Set phasers to Calypso. There I see her, sitting there across this space. She don't have her systems fixed, and that's so much the better. Yes, I don't know why, but I'm dying to try. I got to kill the Kirk. Yes, I want him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that shirt so open wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't mean want like that. What I want is to off him. Yeah, 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 Cause this galaxy can't hold both you and me. I've got to. Kill the Khan. Sha-la-la-la, it's not politics. They're clearly measuring dicks. Who's bigger, Kirk or Khan? Tell me who will live and who will die. Testosterone's too high. Will it be Kirk or Khan? Chapter 15, Spock's Geometric Blunder. Novelized by Mike Wilson. Narrated by J.K. Simmons. The starship's reliant and enterprise slither through empty space like it isn't even there. Aboard the Enterprise, Spock gazes vacantly at the space map. Estimating nebula penetration in 2.2 minutes, he declares, a gruesome blue glow shining outward from his face, illuminating the control panel. Reliant is closing. The Enterprise lurches forward along a glistening trail of purple ions, each nacelle ingesting the space in front of it and blasting it out the back through its ass. Scary thunder and frightening lightning permeate the space outside the ship. Inside, the atmosphere gets heavy in the Jeffreys tubes, a network of large maintenance conduits that span the ship, as the entire crew ducks in there to do huge bong rips and calm the fuck down. As the crew of the Enterprise cope with their situation, the Reliant is in pursuit. If they go in there, we'll lose them, Joaquin mules. Explain it to them barks Khan, as the Reliant gently secretes a photon torpedo in the direction of the Enterprise. 
The crew of the Enterprise grip their own faces to keep their balance as they shriek uncontrollably for good luck. In Ten Forward, the ship's bar, a red-shirted ensign accidentally bites his own hand, flinches, and falls on his ass. The busboy simultaneously shrieks and bites the ensign's other hand. That was close, Savik declares to the bridge crew as the photon torpedo misses the Enterprise by like an inch. Taking a brief but appalling moment to consider the situation, William Shatner guesses that they just don't want us going in there. Spock gazes vacantly at the space map. One minute to nebula perimeter, he declares, committing an egregious geometric blunder by invoking the two-dimensional concept of perimeter to describe a boundary in three-dimensional space. Why are we slowing? implores Khan from the captain's chair of the Reliant. We daren't follow them into the nebula, sir. Our shields will be useless, Joachim replies, as if now is the right time to slow down because something is useless, as if there hadn't been like a half-dozen useless superhumans standing around the bridge doing nothing the entire time. Meanwhile, and elsewhere, Spock gazes vacantly at the Enterprise's speedometer for the Reliant. They are reducing speed. William Shatner sweats and wants to talk. Uhura, patch me in. Aye, sir, Uhura confirms. You're on, Admiral. On the bridge of the Reliant, William Shatner's voice emerges from the William Shatner intercom with incredible authority. An authority that would make the immense intercom proficiency of Oscar from Charlie's Angels look weak. This is Admiral Kirk. We tried it once your way, Khan. Are you game for a rematch? Khan, William Shatner continues, I'm laughing at the superior intellect. Khan issues a direct order. Full impulse power. Joachim responds insolently, No, sir, you have Genesis. You can have whatever you... Full power, damn you! Khan shrieks and fucking floors it on the impulse motors. The Reliant lurches forward toward the nebula. The nacelles aren't just nibbling space, they're fucking chugging it and blasting it out the backside, super bad. From the view screen inside the Enterprise, the Reliant looks like the south end of a northbound racehorse from every angle. I'll say this for him, he's consistent, Shatner mules. Spock gazes vacantly at the space map. We are now entering the Matara Nebula. Aboard the Enterprise, no one can see shit on the screen anymore. All the fucking lights go out at the same time. Dr. David Marcus grips a railing and begins to twitch. In the Jeffreys tubes, Casper the Friendly Ghost races from junction to junction in a mad panic, while Chilly Willie builds an igloo and desperately cocoons. People eat meat for breakfast, and hard cheeses get depressed as they go unnoticed at the back of the fridge for, like, weeks. Emergency lights, William Shatner orders. The Enterprise looks like shit and keeps moving forward into the erupting nebula. The Reliant looks cool and gets jolted by nebula particles as it continues its pursuit. Tactical, Khan intones. Inoperative, Joachim responds. Raise the shields, Khan intones. As I feared, sir, not functional, I'm reducing speed. 
Khan and Joachim exchange mutual side eyes, then front eyes, then chill the fuck out. The Reliant and the Enterprise prance around the Matara Nebula like a pair of mesmerized Broncos in the middle of a fucking F5 tornado. Subspace lightning and purple circular thunder start off real bad and get a lot worse. Centuries before, the early titans of spacefaring would pay $475,000 to have dinner in orbit, return to Earth, and be disappointed to have to shit it out in a regular toilet. If anyone had told them space would turn out like this, they might never have left the bathroom in the first place. On the bridge of the Enterprise, the view screen is obscured by so much static that no amount of dryer sheets could even begin to chisel it all off. Everyone stares at it anyway. Target, sir. Nobody even asked Mr. Sulu to shoot anything. All anyone knows is nobody can see a fucking thing in any direction. Phaser lock inoperative, sir. Best guess, Mr. Sulu. Fire when ready. Immediately ready, Mr. Sulu blasts the living shit out of the Reliant with some lasers. Aft torpedoes! Khan cries out from the bridge of the Reliant. Fire! The torpedo misses the Enterprise by an incredible margin. It almost misses outer space. Hold your course, mumbles William Shatner, oblivious to the fact that the course is a collision course. Evasive starboard. The Reliant messes up parts of the Enterprise with some laser flames. Fire! William Shatner orders in retaliation. On the Reliant, every console on the bridge simultaneously explodes. In the aftermath, Khan rages so hard that it's not enough to simply remove a piece of wreckage pinning his henchman to the ground. He fucking throws that thing. Okay, this is chapter 16, Scotty Loses Consciousness, and I'm Fred McCauley. I'm going to be reading this, and it was written by John Ross Bowie. As the smoke clears, I stagger away for the damage. Oh, everything fucking hurts. My back, of course, as always, but my knees are starting to kill me as well. I was going to have to ask the computer for a new patella, and bones, maybe, could you get me some new painkillers, because I've developed a tolerance to the old ones, and they'd make me constipated. I haven't had a poo in three fucking days. Three days, if you can believe that. I and these new uniforms, they're shite. Perfectly climate-controlled spacecraft. We've got an internal gravity system. Each room has a thermostat. Bloody Federation has us dressed up like wee toddlers in Antarctica. Jesus. Damage, Mr. Scott, says the wee cunt with an aft hair. Because apparently it would fucking kill him to ask how I'm doing. Admiral, which, by the way, you can fuck off. I was with you at the academy. You cheated your way through the Kobayashi Maru, you raj wee shite. Captain, I've got to take the mains off the line. Fucking hell. I'm dizzy. I feel bone shove his arms under mine, which is fucking hilarious. I'm like a tree trunk next to that spindly wee wanker, but I let him carry me off. I can barely exhale. It's the radiation. Before he lays me down on the floor, which is spinning like mad, and the sweat is pissing off me. And that daft cunt Kirk leaves the channel open, first in his class at Starfleet Academy, so I can hear him in the Vulcan and the whole bridge. And guess what? They're all sounding terribly concerned about me and my health. Kidding! They keep their heads firmly up their arses, and apparently a barely conscious chief engineer with radiation sickness is just not a fucking priority. Well, fuck the lot of them! I can just make out Chekhov's wee little Soviet voice offer to help, like the do-gooder roaster Dougie always is to James T., 
Cunt puts him in the weapons. Spock offers some horse about sporadic energy readings. Port side aft could be an impulse turn. Oh, do you think, laddie, that the Reliant might just be doing shite impulsively after we blew them halfway to hell? Where would we be without your wisdom, you soft prick? It goes quiet for a spell. Or I do. Fucking hell. I'm knackered. Either way, next thing I know, Spock is talking shite again, all about how Khan's intelligent but not experienced and thinks two-dimensionally, which is him sticking his tongue right up the Admiral's arse. Kirk beats him one time at 3D chess and the only way to get him to pay attention is to feed his wee frail ego. But lo and behold, it works. Bolt, Spock, you mangled wee fud. Kirk summons his serious voice and announces, Z minus 10,000 metres, ready torpedoes. And I think, Jesus, Can must be a complete fucking wankstein of Kirk's master strategies to just go south and go boom. But the fuck do I know? I just make the ship move forward through space and time and you dunny have to listen to me. I feel the ship drop, but I'm already woozy, so... <laughs> spew a big, chunky, loud bulk and they can totally hear it in the bridge, but they can't. They don't care, so don't mind me. I'll just be hearing my own nuclear sick. Admiral Chode himself yells, Fire! three times and I can hear them connect the way torpedoes do when they sneak up behind you thanks to sun fickin' Sue down there in the big chair that spins round. Kirk tells Uhuru to tell the Reliant to surrender and prepare to be boarded. We've barely have the fucking power to flush a toilet, but oh, aye, sure, let's transport a landing crew. Brilliant, laddie. What's above Admiral? Chief Egypt? Can whisper something. He's not going without a fight, so maybe a fourth torpedo might have been in order. Philosopher King Fanny. I can hear Can say, To the last, I will grapple with thee. Which is what Ahab says to Moby Dick. Ah, you can fuck off, I went to university. And all I can think is, Jesus, to be a whale, the Admiral would have to drop about ten stone. I even whisper, lol, which is a phrase my great granny used to say, but Jesus, I'm losing consciousness fast, just as well. Get to fuck the lot of you. Chapter 17. The Annoyance of Nudian. Novelized by Sheck Baker. Narrated by Maurice LaMarche. Reliant. Limping. Ruined. Her amputated limbs a crackle with arcing fire. Seemed but a wraith now amid the waves of static washing across the viewscreen. Her foe all but vanquished. The tension on the Enterprise bridge slowly began to uncoil, and with it, the vigilance of her bridge crew. Here, collected together from across the whole universe, were the smartest, most insufferable overachievers from almost a dozen worlds, each with the highest-weighted GPA in their respective space high schools. Aside from the human cadets, there was a Cadet Wolfman's from Planet Frankenstein, a squid-faced guy from Star Wars, a couple of Frankensteins from Archoner 3, a.k.a. Frankenstein's Planet, you know, all the best kinds of aliens, and they were using the apparent victory over Khan as a permission slip to drag ass. They seemed to be taking their cues from David, the marooned scientist from Regular One, who was leaning against a console like an abandoned country club brat, sweater draped over his shoulders, a lit cigarette dangling from his lips. Only the two Vulcans, Savick and Spock himself, attended their duties with appropriate alacrity. Spock, as ever heeding the sacred science officer's creed, scan or die, directed his scanners onto every conceivable object nearby. Scanning the surrounding nebula returned the familiar nebula-shaped wave to his view panel. 
Scanning Enterprise's engineering section detected a wave of mutilation. Scanning Reliant, waves for dead superhumans, the con wave, and... Admiral, Spock intoned, and Kirk swiveled in his chair. Scanning an energy source on Reliant, a pattern I've never seen before. David lurched over and leaned in to take a look at the reading, his ample curls spilling into Spock's face, his sig ashing all over the carpet under Spock's station. Spock abided this, as Spock ever abided such galling human dipshittery. It's the Genesis wave, David yelled. What? said Kirk, rising in alarm from his seat. Kirk raced over to the science station to stare at the wave, uncomprehending as usual, squinting at the undulating lines. Two humans in Spock's face, blocking the science scanner. The bridge crew, jolted out of their collective reverie, went totally squirmy at the news. How soon? asked Kirk, all business, all man of action, ready to spring. David put on his best serious boy face. We encoded four minutes. Kirk scrunched up his nose, puzzled. We! David's eyes darted side to side, and he opened his mouth, but all that came out was, Ugh. Kirk rolled his eyes, waved a hand, and half turned away. Never mind. We'll beam aboard and stop it. David reached out and grabbed Kirk's arm. You can't! Kirk looked down at David's hand and then up, staring daggers. David relaxed his grip on Kirk's arm and gulped. I can't? Kirk swiped David's hand away. Can't I? What do you know about can't? This is what Daddy does. Um, no, stammered David, taking a nervous drag and flicking ash everywhere. What I mean is, you can beam aboard, but once the countdown starts... Kirk glowered and held a finger to David's lips. You, he hissed. Shut. He then stabbed the intercom button. Scotty, I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. He turned back toward David for the first time in his son's life, giving him his full attention. So, you have a thing that factory resets planets counting down over there, he seethed, jerking his thumb at Reliant. And when it goes off, it's going to shred all of us down to atoms and overwrite our DNA with jungles full of space plants. And you're telling me you set the timer for, what was it, Spock? Four minutes, Admiral. Four minutes, thank you. You've got a four-minute timer on God's infinite fury, and you didn't bother to install an off switch on the fucking whatever it's called. David tilted his head back, spat smoke in Kirk's face, cranked up his best bad scientist sneer. Uh, it's called a Genesis, Dad. He'd even air-quoted Dad. Snorting like a rhino, Kirk raced back to Spock Station and jammed the intercom button again. Who had time for this kid's shit now? Never mind, he'd make time. Scotty! He imagined that yelling harder somehow made a difference. Uhura, peeved at Kirk's refusal to follow proper telephone etiquette, broke in testily. No response, Admiral. Kirk whipped around at Uhura, gesturing at David. And he thought the military would turn his precious genesis into a weapon. Ha! Uhura, blushing, kept at her duties, pretending this wasn't happening again. Tell me, son, he said, returning the air quotes and grinning at everyone. How many of us are going to get killed by the peacenik scientists today? Now the whole bridge crew shifted in their seats, paying real close attention to whatever bullshit was gumming up their monitors. Hmm? David just stood there, half-sneering. Not so fucking smart now. Kirk elbowed past him and barked at Sulu. Get us out of here. Best possible speed. Aye, sir. His face grim as the engines chugged to some approximation of life.
The ship banked away from Reliance so slowly, the crew might have thought they were back in space dock. Kirk turned again, made toward David in deliberate fury. David took a long, brave drag on his sig and balled up his uncalloused science fists. Kirk grabbed the sleeves of David's sweater and cinched them around David's neck. Spock rose from his seat, deftly avoiding the father-son scrum, and made for the turbo lift. Humans and their rituals, he thought. Logically, if they needed the Enterprise to work right, then someone would have to go fix the Enterprise. Ladder by hatch, hatch by ladder, Spock descended toward engineering. With the turbo lifts disabled, he would be forced to climb down the whole height of the ship, an ordeal comprising the most merciless, most tedious platforming stage in the entire movie. Depleting any ordinary crewmen of all their lives, and usually culminating in a rage-quit reset, this infuriating level had been programmed by bored, underpaid Taiwanese who had neither seen the film nor cared to understand the plot. The obstacles, therefore, consisted of totally whack enemies, usually other crewmen undertaking nonsensical attacks, and stupid shit like dripping lava, damaging clouds of steam, and the usual pits filled with instant kill energy spikes. Spock would have relished the challenge had he been capable of relish. However, he did pause to offer prayer to the gods of logic for help with this ultimate trial. Dear ones and zeros, he began, jumping over a low fireball, I know I do not often appeal to you for assistance, but... He held his tongue briefly to duck under a high fireball. He never got the chance to finish. Out of nowhere, an alleged Mr. Scott ran at Spock, lifting up his kilt and exposing his foul nakedness. Spock stepped to the side and administered a neck pinch. As Scott sank to the floor unconscious, his genitalia writhing, Spock groaned, I am sorry, I have no time to discuss this logically. Then the Vulcan reached up to Scott's fleshy face and inserted his katra into the engineer's head. Just a little insurance in case Spock needed a quick resurrection later. But if the whole ship gets blown up, no. Spock sidestepped a little plant shooting energy balls. No, there wasn't time to consider the no-win scenario. Spock hurried through another hatch and climbed down yet another ladder. Suddenly, a cadet ran toward him, howling and swinging nunchaku in its hairy claws. Spock arched an eyebrow and neck-pinched the fuck out of the guy, saying, I am sorry, Cadet Wolfmans. I have no time to discuss this logically. This went on for some time. Lava, ladder, spike pit, hatch, putting his katra into dude after random dude, until finally Spock arrived at engineering, having died only four times the whole way down. In thanks, he pulled out his necklace and kissed the symbol of his beloved logic gods, a medallion in the shape of the formula 1 plus 1 equals 2. Slumped on the floor near some super-important engine stuff was the real Mr. Scott, in his real radiation-resistant kilt. Over him crouched McCoy, attempting without success to rouse him by slapping him lightly on the cheeks and muttering, Come on, goddammit! McCoy stopped all of a sudden, and his ears seemed to prick up. Spock sensed that McCoy could feel his presence, could see the doctor's back stiffening, could predict the doctor would intuit his sacrificial move to rescue the ship, could tell that McCoy would soon be maligning his Vulcan mind, and in moments McCoy was indeed on his feet, blocking Spock's path to the main energizer compartment. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? McCoy demanded. No human can tolerate the radiation that's in there. Oh, fuck this already, said Spock, pinching McCoy to the ground. He grabbed Scott's radiation gloves and moved toward the reactor, then quickly turned back to insert his katra into McCoy. One more for luck, as humans might say. Remember.
he said sullenly, and then ran for the reactor room. Ignoring a big red sign flashing radiation, Spock entered the compartment's revolving door and spun into a hellstorm of rapidly decaying engine byproducts. Rays named after every letter in the Greek alphabet pelted Spock's atoms, blasting them all apart. Freed up neutrons and protons started piling up under Spock's dermis. Pulling on Scotty's puffy white radiation gloves. What's up, Doc? A human reference joke. Spock went to work. Scott himself was now astir, and seeing Spock through the radiation-proof glass, puttering around in the reactor room wearing only a pair of overstuffed gloves, began giggling. Suddenly, realizing this wasn't just another wish-fulfillment dream, Scott leapt to his feet. Spock! he screamed. Get out of there! To no avail. Spock! Hey! You owe me a tenner! The main energizer was housed in a black, dick-shaped pillar in the middle of the hexagonal reactor room. Once bonked out of alignment, Spock knew the only way to rekajigger the energizer with the engine running was to pull the mushroom head off that pole and jam his whole hand in there while enough radiation blasted him in the face to melt his ears off. It was a good thing Spock was Vulcan, because the whole thing was a bit too sexy. Spock! yelled Scotty again, clearly out of good ideas. Get out of there! Back on the bridge, the remaining crew had formed into a ring around the Admiral's chair, making bets on the fly while Kirk and David threw haymakers and insults at each other in turn. Kirk was dismayed to note that the crew were cheering wildly, and the name they were shouting was not Jim. Nonplussed and off-balance, Kirk swung wildly at David, both hands knotted together, and missed. But David's counterpunch glanced harmlessly off the sweat on Kirk's forehead. And the Admiral twirled around and socked his son square underneath the jaw, knocking him sprawling to the floor. The still-lit cigarette smashed into his gnarled and busted teeth. The crew let out a gasp of disappointment and began settling up. Kirk spat on David's face. Dumbass, am I? he shrieked. Well, double dumbass on you! David moaned and tried to roll over to Kirk's disgust. I can't believe you're playing my son. You're worse than Chekhov. He spat again. Mr. Savick, time for my mark. Savick, exchanging cash with the other betters, glanced at her chronometer. Two minutes, ten seconds. Kirk frowned. Something was off. He'd beaten the shit out of a guy, but still felt crummy. Engineering, he bellowed into the intercom. I just did a Star Trek-type fighter and my own kid, and I'm starting to think it was really fucked up. Are we going to die or what? But whoever the Ahura of engineering was, they'd taken a powder, or... They'd been reduced to a powder-like substance by Reliant, and Kirk's squawking went unanswered. After watching Spock suicide himself around the reactor room, Scott had run out of words anyway. You dumb... Uh, Nini, get out of there! Spock moved uneasily toward the Energizer housing. No! God, don't! yelled Scott. The warranty! Spock fumbled for the reactor cover and gave the head a medium-sized tug until it popped off in his arms and he set it aside. Now McCoy was stumbling to his feet outside the chamber, rasping, Good God, man! Get out of there! Spock, however, couldn't hear much beyond the fat laser beam of radiation spewing into his face. He reached right into the energizer housing, and though the gloves he wore could not possibly save him, they might keep his fingers from turning into unresponsive goop before they had a chance to screw the thing back in. On the bridge, the thrill of the Donnybrook had faded, and the mood had turned sullen again. As the crew watched Reliant on the view screen, it seemed not to be receding, even by tiny increments. 
but impossibly, to be closing in. Time, Kirk demanded. Three minutes, thirty seconds, replied Savick. Kirk threw her a withering look. You just said two minutes. He threw his hands up in exasperation while Savick averted her eyes. Yes, you did. You said two minutes, like twenty seconds ago. Am I crazy? Doomed crewmen sighed and pulled down the skin under their eyes one last time as Kirk whipped himself into a froth. We started with four minutes, then we had two minutes, and now it's three. I mean, if it's three, great. He plopped into his chair and spun lazily. Distance for Bliant. Chekhov cleared his throat and choked back. Four thousand kilometers. Sulu winced. We're not going to make it, are we? Kirk waved at the screen, helpless. I, I mean, no. The thing's right fucking there. They all looked, and there was no denying how right fucking there the thing was. Reliant and its Old Testament god bomb was, without a doubt, close enough to blow all their worthless asses straight to fucking space hell. Damn, that it sounded good. Kirk hoped he'd said it aloud. Kirk glanced over at David, slumped and wounded, his bloodied face finally throwing the subtext of Kirk's absentee fatherhood into bold-faced type. And what had been the point of that brutal display? Truth was, he'd marched them all to this cringe-worthy end, and there was nothing he could do but big-dick his own son in front of a bunch of interns. He'd only just met this boy earlier that day. And what's the first thing he'd done? Stomped in like a drunk and stepped all over his science project. Questioned his manhood, broken his face, and these others. He looked at the dejected creatures lurking in the shadows of the bridge. These were all his real children, weren't they? These animals licking their chops at the idea he'd finally go down, as though some scientist could have... Perhaps he should... No, the shame was too great. Better to keep punching down. And watch, now Chekhov's going to tell us it's only 2,000 kilometers. Chekhov squirmed at his station, hemming and hawing at his tactical readout. Well, now that you have said something, Admiral... Kirk just waved him off, staring at the stomach-curdling truth of the big screen. Dying this way was probably too good for him. On Reliance Bridge, on what remained of it, Reliance's only living occupant perceived the distance of Enterprise, or lack thereof, with relative glee. Khan beamed through a mask of blood, a sardonic grin twisting up his mutilated visage, as he saw through the static that Enterprise could not possibly flee from Genesis, from Destiny, from Khan. No, he whispered. No, you can't get away. Khan stroked his chin with one useless dead puppet hand and watched Enterprise fail to escape. It was the best of times, he snarled. It was the worst of times. Khan glanced around his bridge for approval, but the dead piled nearby were mute to his performance. No, no, this would simply not do. But wait... With his last ounces of strength, Khan crawled over to his beloved Yakim, held his long, blonde head in two slick, gory hands, then tore it from its spine and held it aloft in his good paw. He turned back to the screen, lips pulled back in a nauseating grimace. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. On the screen, Enterprise inched away in wounded silence. Pathetic. Khan's heart leapt as he imagined Genesis surging in his hold, totally badass beams of light and dry ice smoke pouring out of it. Only seconds remained. 
Khan chuckled as sparks flew down around him on his mangled bridge. Hey, Moby Dick, he spat at Enterprise. It is me, Captain Ahab, from that book. Though Khan's racked body tried mightily to die, Khan willed it to continue so that its eyes, leaking blood, might witness his final pyrrhic triumph. And now, I think, Kirk, he gasped, watching Enterprise flounder. We ourselves have together written a new literary masterpiece. He coughed blood onto his useless, palsied hand. <coughs> yes, it is a book I shall call Mr. Singh's Fabulous Payback. Spock staggered away from the Energizer, the work complete. He lacked any strength to move, but not the will as gross globs of his skin dripped off his skull, and four new stubs of tentacles slithered about his ruined torso. Ugh, oh, my beloved Spocktipus, wailed Scott. Spock picked up the reactor lid with both gloves. He dared not think that what remained within them could possibly be hands by now, and with one last heave, plopped it back on top of the stern. He felt something heave, in turn, within the bowels of the Enterprise. Logic had once again prevailed. Scotty turned his tear-streaked face to McCoy. Was that all he was trying to do? He blubbered. I could have done that. McCoy gestured to the flashing red radiation sign. But what about McCoy? Scotty cocked his head at the doctor and pointed to the console opposite the reactor room. Above the panel, a flashing green, no radiation sign. Below the sign, a toggle switch labeled Emergency Main Energizer Reset. Kirk waited for the end of his life while viewing on the screen the agent of his forthcoming demise. Khan's going to win, he thought, shaking his head, mesmerized by the lifeless hulk of Reliant out there, about to become the mother of his destruction, finish off his son, euthanize all these other misbegotten, misled space kids. Khan is actually about to beat me, he thought. And I don't even remember if I managed to fuck his wife or not. That's what this whole thing had to be about, right? Ah, well, he said aloud. He could feel it coming from the crew, what almost seemed like relief. But he supposed he owed them something at last. It's finally over, Kirk whispered. He stood up. <clears throat> well, everybody, he began. Suddenly, an electric chirp yelped out of the engineering console. The cadet manning the station leapt out of his chair, lukewarm coffee spraying in all directions. Naturally, thought Kirk, this is how the day ends. Of all the fucking... Sir, sputtered the cadet, more coffee splashing every which way. The mains are back online. All forgotten, all forgiven, whole once more, invincible, perfect Kirk. Bless you, Scotty, he mumbled, swiping coffee off his face and then shouted, Go, Sulu! Sulu threw Enterprise into warp speed as Genesis and Reliant exploded in a righteous firestorm that engulfed the whole nebula, sucking every stray particle into its expanding maw. The jaws of the blast opened wide, sprinting after Enterprise, snapping shut and missing, fading out just behind her antimatter trails. Enterprise raced into the darkness as all that had once existed inside the Mutara Nebula filled with new light and became something else altogether. Chapter 18, Live Long or Die Trying, novelized by Mickey Cathers, narrated by me, Beth Stelling. 
The Enterprise is a zooming, like a bat out of hell through concentric circles of light while shooting rainbows at its butt. On the deck are intrepid heroes, Kirk, Sulu, Savik, and Petty Officer Manny Petty, gaze awestruck out the windshield of the spaceship as the elevator door whooshes softly open behind them. Kirk and Manny Petty turn to see Dr. Carroll, fresh from the ski lodge, fetching in her gorgeous Donna Karen maroon and cream parka, paired expertly with light blue mom jeans. Carol steps forward, hands in pocket, mesmerized by the view. Savik and Sulu still stare stupidly straight ahead, mouths open like they're trying to catch space flies. My God, Carol, look at it, Kirk says, and this ain't the first time if you catch my drift. But this time he was totally referencing this big red ball of light, this middle school P.E. dodgeball of light shining brightly outside, out there in the outer space. Carol ignores Kirk's obvious come on, again, not the first time, and goes to hold hands with her son, David, just absolutely stealing the show in his green jumpsuit and white sweater tied around his neck. These two are ready for the runway. Jim, I think you better get down here. Comes a voice out of Kirk's chair. It is the Bones Doctor. Kirk, no dummy, looks to Spock's empty chair, just knowing that knucklehead did something silly. He has got to see this shit. Kirk hops up from his chair like a dog that's heard a whistle you probably can't hear because it's too high for humans. He barks to Savik to take the chair, but he doesn't tell her where to take it. Presumably because he heard that whistle we didn't hear and like has no time to finish his thought about chair placement at a time like this. Kirk enters another elevator on the other side of the deck, passing our fashion icons who continue to lovingly watch the gigantic dodgeball of fire growing in size in the vast, sparkly, black velvet drapes of space. As this terrifying ball of fire starts looking more and more like the inside of a volcano, radiating smelly gases, Kirk runs through the hallways of the spaceship, also radiating smelly gases. But he's not running full speed. He wouldn't want to pull a hammy. But like faster than a jog, maybe? Sort of fast, not sprinting. Maybe he's frightened of that giant ball of fire like any rational human being should be and is trying to get away from it as fast as he can. But not stupid fast, because like, what if you tripped? You could hurt your ankle. And then good luck getting away from that ball of fire then. Kirk reaches engineering totally body checking some poor dude in his spaceman suit and starts climbing down the ladder before he remembers how fun it is to just treat the ladder like a fireman's pole and slide down like a boss, his bell-bottom slacks inflating to slow his descent. But no one is paying any attention. All the spacemen are staring into the middle of the room, don't even notice their captain running through them like he's bowling for penguins. Kirk stops for a second and sees what these looky-loos are gawking at. He pants a little from his run as sweat gently beads on his puffy red face. Kirk goes into a runner's lunge just to stretch his muscles because seriously, you do not want to pull anything when you've got to run around a spaceship day and night. Properly stretched, Kirk starts on his run again and is tackled by Mr. Scott the Scott and Bones the Doctor. No! You'll flood the whole compartment, shouts Bones as he, Scott the Scott, and Ensign John St. Johnson hold Kirk back. Dime, Kirk says, 
clearly so out of breath he can't form a coherent sentence about the money he spotted on the floor and wanted to pick up. Date. He's date already, Scott the Scott says. Okay, I'm going to pause here because I'm afraid this is about to get really sad and I want you to have a moment to compose yourself and prepare and maybe forget about the Scottish accent I just tried to do. Get some tissues. Maybe a blanket to hold on to. I'll wait. Okay, you ready? It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. It's too late, Bones the doctor says, and a sudden sobering realization dawns on Kirk's face that he should probably just give up trying to finish this jog. These guys are strong, and Ensign John St. Johnson is hugging him around the waist for some reason and making him a bit uncomfortable. Kirk lets his body go limp, and Scott the Scott, Bones the doctor, and Ensign John St. Johnson let go of Kirk, who staggers forward to rest his hands on a blue glowing column encased in plexiglass. He whispers, Spock, and then hits his head like in those old VA commercials where the person has like a cupcake or something and then smacks themselves in the face saying, damn it, I could have had some pureed tomato soup to drink instead, but I blew it. I blew it. Damn, this forgetful brain. Like that. Then Kirk hits the intercom and shouts Spock's name, and this time it works. He has roused his sleepy friend on the other side of the plexiglass. Oh, but Spock is getting up slowly. He maybe didn't stretch before his workout because, boy, howdy, is he having a hard time standing. He does, though, shakily, and adjusts his cute, flared, burgundy blouse, which has ridden up a bit while he was napping on the floor. Always fashion forward, this guy. Spock turns around to face Kirk on the other side of the plexiglass and bumps into the wall separating them. His face is all mottled and scarred like when you put the spatula too close to the stovetop. Ship out of danger, Spock mutters, shaking his head when Kirk answers with, you betcha, buddy. Then Spock says their code phrase, probably something they came up with on a road trip in their late 20s when driving out to the Badlands with only a six-pack and a mixtape sounded cool. The needs of many, Spock starts, and Kirk finishes his sentence like the pushy bastard he can be. He just can't help himself. Outweigh the needs of the few. Spock, totally PO'd but keeping it real, adds, or the one. He lets that stinger hit its mark and as Kirk stands there gasping like a fish on land, Spock continues, I never took the Kobayashi test. Now what do you think of my solution? Kirk is just staring at Spock in frank disbelief. What is with all this sass? Spock realizes he's being a little too shitty and feels bad, so he says, I have been and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. And he does the Vulcan middle finger, which Kirk tries to match, but his chubby fingers just don't bend that way. Then Spock just freaking lays down and dies. Classic Spock. Kirk slumps to the floor in shock and grief. Then I know what you're thinking. Cut to Kirk bringing flowers to sickbay 
and we see Spock in bed reading Tiger Beat, and Kirk says, you gave us quite a scare. But no, no. Cut to a coffin shaped like a giant eyeglasses case being lowered into the middle of a circle of all our favorite Enterprise friends. Sulu, Chekhov, Scott the Scott, with full bagpipe, Kirk, the Bones Doctor, Uhuru, and Savik, all looking glum and shit. Spock is date. Dead. Never, ever to return. Ever. Chapter 19. My Motherfucker is Dead. By Jordan Black. Read by Wayne Brady. The way Uhura was screaming over the casket, you would have thought Spock owed her money. But Kirk knew he had to remain strong for his crew. As he took in the scene, it occurred to him that there was a bright side to burying your best friend. It sure in hell beat him burying you. This made Kirk giggle, but just on the inside. Now was not the time for levity. It was the time for words. Kirk looked around the room and said, This man slash alien was not only a great friend slash alien, he was also my colleague slash alien and my right hand slash alien for many years now. As I look around at all of you, I... Can't help but think how I'd rather have lost a lot of you than have lost my hero-slash-alien, Mr. Spock. As this landed on his crew, Kirk realized it was unfair of him to attack the whole group, and instead, he should attack them individually. He turned to Bones. Bones, it should have been you in this casket. It should have been you and your smug, know-it-all dickishness, and the fact that it's not proves to me there is no God. And Uhura, come all the way the fuck down. The only reason you're this upset is because Spock has been trying to hit that forever and you acted like you had the last drop of Romulan ale between your legs and you were saving it for Jesus. Truth is, Spock probably died from blue balls. And newsflash, Jesus don't want it. Kirk went down the aisle one by one and ripped everyone a new asshole. Cursed the alley. Jim, the Scottish guy, the other guy, the Asian guy. Anyway, they all just nodded along because they knew he spoke the truth. Or they didn't want to defend themselves and run the risk of losing their jobs. Finally, after the last new asshole had been ripped, Kirk turned to the casket and asked, Who's paying for this because it's not coming out of the Enterprise's budget? Later that evening... Just as a depressed Kirk was preparing to get fucked up on a secret stash of heroin he'd been saving for whenever he decided that sobriety just wasn't for him anymore, his long-lost son stops by. At first, Kirk couldn't make out at all what this dumb kid wanted because all he could think about was the heroin burning a hole in his pocket, but then he realized the kid was trying to connect with the absent father he'd never known. The kid, Kirk could never remember his name, told him how proud he was to be his son. At that moment, it dawned on Kirk how lucky he was that a man can completely shirk his parenting responsibilities, but if he shows up 20 years later and buys his kid a beer, people will pat him on the back and tell him what a good father he is. Whereas, if a mother takes a weekend away from her kids to hang out with her new boyfriend, she's a monster who should be burned at the stake. It was at that moment that Kirk 
for the first time, truly appreciated being a man. As he smiled, he realized the kid thought he was smiling at him. So Kirk set him straight and told him he wasn't. Kirk prided himself on his honesty. As our heroes hyperspeed away from what has simply been the greatest story ever told, Kirk sets off for his next adventure. Captain's Log, starting 2000, parties over with, out of time. Starship Enterprise, setting out for its next adventure. I know the narrator already stated this, but I'm the star of this movie, so I always take the best lines for myself, and I'm not going to change now. Bottom line is, wherever we go, next, it's going to be the ship because we went there. If we didn't go somewhere, it's because they ain't really about nothing anyway. It reminds me of something an old friend slash alien once said to me. I'm talking about Spock. If it burns when you pee-pee, then you should see someone about that. Not sure why it reminds me of that. It's funny, I haven't thought of that for years, and it's been burning when I pee as long as I can remember. I guess now, when it burns... I'll think about Spock, and that way, he's never truly gone. And finally, as the planets hurl through space, or space hurls around the planets, there's no real way to know which it is, there is only one place left to go. Space, the final frontier. These are the ongoing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out Anyway, y'all get it. The point is, Kirk's a junkie, and he won't let anyone help him. Epilogue, novelized and narrated by Dave Hill. It was a seriously long time after the end of the movie, several weeks, if not months, in fact, and Captain Kirk was still totally exhausted from Khan's wrath, the thing with the eels, and honestly, just all of Khan's bullshit in general. In short, Kirk had basically had it, so in an effort to recharge and get ready for whatever crazy space shit was undoubtedly in store for him next, he decided to book himself a two-week getaway at an all-inclusive resort in Cancun, a seaside town on the Genesis planet that was eerily reminiscent of the other, arguably more popular Cancun located in Mexico on planet Earth, so much in fact that they were both named Cancun, same spelling and everything which was nuts. What I could really use more than anything right now is a drink in my hand and my toes in the sand, Captain Kirk said as he stood out on his hotel room's balcony, which unfortunately overlooked the parking lot and not the ocean, even though the lady at the front desk had assured him like nine times that he could totally see the ocean from his room. Was Kirk pissed about the thing with the balcony? Of course, but he wasn't going to let it ruin his good time. So, after pulling on some board shorts and slathering around so much sunscreen he looked like he was about to swim the English Channel or something, Kirk headed downstairs to the lobby and out the front door of the hotel without saying a word to the lady at the front desk about that bullshit about not being able to see the ocean from his room, even though she was just sitting there playing Minesweeper or some other dumb game when he passed. It was a balmy 75 degrees out, and Kirk enjoyed the feeling of the sun on his face as he shuffled off in the direction of the beach. This is nice, he thought. It's Kirk time, baby. Kirk made it about 50 yards when he happened upon a crab shack on the side of the road. He was hungry but hesitant to stop at the crab shack, as his last experience at such an establishment had been an absolute disaster. So many insults and other rude behavior from the waitstaff, 
Kirk recalled. It was almost like they were doing it on purpose. Then he decided to just forget the past and make a beeline for the nearest open stool at the bar. What can I get you? A bartender with a shaggy, wispy hairstyle that was eerily reminiscent of the one worn by Khan himself asked. Anything but eels, Kirk said with a sigh. What's that? The bartender asked. I said, anything but eels, Kirk replied. It was kind of an inside joke to myself mostly, I guess. Never mind. Yeah, well, we only serve crabs here anyway, the bartender said. And beer and tankinis, of course. What's a tankini? Kirk asked. It's a martini with tang in it. It's right there in the name, the bartender said, seemingly irritated at having to explain this for the thousandth time to newcomers like Kirk. They drink them a lot in space. Is that right? Kirk replied wearily. Well, give me one of those and some of your finest crabs. Coming right up, the bartender said before turning away and heading out back for a quick smoke. Hey, I had crabs once before, Kirk yelled after him. I hope these aren't the same kind. (laughs) Kirk chuckled to himself after that, even though the bartender was long gone. You make your own fun, Kirk mumbled to himself. About ten minutes later, the bartender returned with Kirk's tangtini. Kirk regarded its bright orange hue momentarily before taking a cautious first sip. Mmm, that'll do just fine, Kirk said to no one in particular as he set its glasses down on the bar. Then he began scanning the area with a welcoming grin on his face in that way that people tend to do when they're all alone and just looking for a bit of conversation about literally anything but that fucking con. It was at this point that he saw two familiar figures shuffling along the boardwalk in his direction. It can't be, Kirk thought. Those guys are both totally dead. Captain Kirk? One of the men said after removing an ill-advised fedora. It was Spock. Spock? Kirk said incredulously. Is that really you? It sure is, <laughs> laughed the other man. And I believe you may remember me as well, if I'm not mistaken. Hello, Khan, Kirk said before taking a big gulp of his tangtini. I know what you're thinking, Kirk, Spock began, sensing the awkwardness of the situation. I thought those guys were dead. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Kirk replied sardonically. That did cross my mind, among other things. And you're never going to guess what brought us back to life, Khan said. Okay, I give up, Kirk replied, quickly growing tired of the weirdness of the situation. What brought you back to life? Eels, Spock and Khan said in unison. Isn't that ironic, Spock said. I mean, after what happened? Not as ironic as the fact that you two are maybe the last two guys I expected to see hanging out with each other, whether you're dead or alive, and here you are, chumming it up like a couple of frat brothers on spring break or something, Kirk replied, clearly irritated at this point. Captain Kirk, Spock said, I'm beginning to think you're not happy to see me. Of course I am, damn it, Kirk said, slamming his fist down on the bar. But don't you think this is all a little weird? What's weird? Khan asked, that not only are you guys alive, but you're just hanging out like everything is all peachy keen or whatever, Kirk replied. It's weird! Well, after we got a second shot at life, thanks to eels of all things, we figured life is too short to be all negative, Khan said. And, as it turns out, your pal Spock here and I have a lot in common. So much in common, (laughs) Spock laughed knowingly. It's actually kind of weird. Speaking of weird... 
It was at this point that the bartender wandered over, having been drawn in by both the trio's animated conversation and his sudden realization that we all die. Hey, the bartender said, smiling broadly at Khan. Deplane! Deplane! What? Kirk asked. Deplane! Deplane! The bartender said once more. You know, like the show! I literally have no idea what he's talking about, Khan said dismissively while looking away. So, Kirk, you're good mostly, or? Yeah, I'm fine, Kirk replied before taking another big gulp of his tangtini. Thanks for asking. What's that you're drinking? Khan asked. It's a tangtini, Kirk answered. Very popular in space, apparently. Yeah, right. It's at this point that Spock pulled a vial from his pocket, emptied a couple strange pills into his hand, and offered one to Khan. What the hell is that? Kirk asked suspiciously. Ginkgo biloba, Khan offered. Gilgo who? Kirk asked. Ginkgo biloba, Spock said. We take it every day. Oh, is that right? Kirk asked. Why? It's supposed to improve your memory, Khan replied. Here, try one, Spock offered holding out the vial. No thanks, old friend, Kirk said. I don't understand, Spock said. Why not? Can't you see I'm trying to forget, Kirk replied before abruptly turning around in his seat to face the barn, hopefully send the message to Spock and Khan that he'd had just about enough of them for the time being. Well, it was nice to see you, Spock said awkwardly. I'd honestly thought you'd be happier to see me, but... Yeah, yeah, Kirk said without turning around. Maybe get in touch again when you're not hanging out with your pal here. Spock and Khan took the hint and continued on their way. As soon as Spock and Khan were out of earshot, the bartender walked over to Kirk. Do you know who that was? The bartender asked eagerly. Of course I do, you fucking idiot, Kirk replied irritatedly. Now where are my fucking crabs? Sorry, dude, the bartender replied. I meant to tell you earlier, but we're out. This trip is a fucking disaster, Kirk said before knocking back what was left of his tangtini, putting his sunglasses on, and shuffling back to the hotel. And by the way, asshole, literally no one drinks these in space, and I, of all people, would definitely know. That concludes the novelization of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. I'm your host, Andy Richter. See you next time.